I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the CollectingCast.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Hello and welcome to another Collecting Cars podcast. Special day for me here because I'm currently sitting near Hereford with uh, one of my heroes. He's called Nicky Grist and he sat next to some of the best drivers on the planet. He's also a raconteur beyond compare. So if you want to follow him on Twitter, he's at Nicky Grist. He's got his motorsport apparel business now, including Steel Helmets, which is at... Is that Nicky Gris Motorsport? Nicky Gris Motorsports, yeah. Yeah, you see, I you know all see me stuff. on nickygris.com <laughs> if we're going to do a serious plug. If you go to, if you go to um, any event you see an NG, uh, it, it's not a biscuit manufacturer. It's genuinely Nicky Gris Motorsport. So, Nicky, thank you very much for hosting us at your place of work. Um, I want to start at the beginning with you because mm-hmm. you're mostly asked about the people that you drove with. But yeah. let's hear about you. We don't hear about you enough. So let's start at the beginning. You're born in where? Ebervale? I was born in Ebervale, so I'm a Welsh lad through and through. Um, spent all of my time basically in Wales, but my first real love was was not cars at all. As a, as a youngster, I wasn't interested in it. Um, and it was golf, and I started playing golf at a very young age, introduced to it by my uh, grandfather. And, you know, when I got to the age of leaving school... Um, you know, I left as soon as I could because I just wanted to get into golf business. And I was assistant pro at Momshire Golf Club in Abergavenny. And, you know, only after working there for a couple of years, which was hard work as a young kid at that time. So you were scratch at that point. What were you playing off? Well, no, although my handicap would have been higher than that. I think I was off about four or five when I turned pro, something like that. What, but what are you now? Six. Yeah, you play a lot. I've, I have actually played golf with Nicky a couple of times. Yeah. He's, I mean, I'm a massive left to right, and I also just put people off. My game is just to annoy people, and I, I definitely annoyed him. <laughs> so, so you, so you were a very good golfer then, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I was very keen, very enthusiastic, and I, I would say that when you look at professional golfers on the on the PGA Tour, those are exceptional. You know, really a club pro, somebody could be equally as successful 
um, as a teaching pro, but wouldn't necessarily get anywhere near these guys. And, you know, I think there's all different levels of pro golf, and I was not at that level. At what at point did you realise that your skill level didn't meet your ambition with golf? When I went to watch my first road rally. And that was it. <laughs> I, I went to see, just, just behind the golf club, there's this mountain called the Blorange. And I was in an engagement party in Gilwan, and one of the guys... Um, boyfriend or one of the girl's boyfriends was doing this rally and they said oh it's going over the top of the Blorange so we partied on in, in Gilwan went up on top of this mountain top at one o'clock in the morning and there was all these RS2000s and guys blasting around I thought Christ this is brilliant and we met a couple of other guys that knew where the rally was going so we just tagged on so then watched the next place watched the next place you know and then before I knew it it was half past five in the morning having breakfast in Hay on Wye and I thought, my God, I didn't know this world. Is this late 70s now? Where are we? Yeah, you would have been late 70s. Not, not trying to age you, just trying to yeah, get some yeah. context to the audience. <laughs> well, I am old anyway, but that's another story. Um, and that was it. I was hooked. I mean, I just watched a few more and then started, um, lo- joined my local motor club and then got involved with a few guys and started competing. And, you know, I was going off doing these road rallies on a Saturday night. I'd but were you driving or were you riding Navigating. This is inter- I think it's really interesting that from the start you identified the appeal of this as, as riding shotgun. Because, let's be honest, most people that, that see a vehicle driven in that kind of manner want to do the driving themselves. Why mm. do you think it was that you wanted to sit in the passenger seat? I think it was because of my job in the first place. Because at that time I was earning £15 a week or something. You know, I was driving round in a, a Riley Kestrel. That's all I could afford. I mean, what a wonderful car. I wish I'd had that now. But, you know, it was a it was an old Austin 1300 dolled up with leather interior and chrome and walnut. Somehow sounds better with your Welsh accent as well. Riley Kestrel. <laughs> God, do I sound that Welsh? But, but, you know, and that was, that basically I couldn't afford a rally car. I couldn't. Yeah. You know, the only way I could get involved was as a navigator. And then, you know, as things progressed, I put a little bit of effort into it. And, you know, I was, I was hooked. I was enthusiastic. And I worked hard, uh, practiced hard. You know, and, and eventually the seats got bigger and better. And, you know, when I started doing some stage rallies, you know, I was in vehicles that are navigating in vehicles that in no way could I afford to drive myself. This, this is fascinating as well, because to come back to the point of your entry to the sport, if you are a driver, the first thing you're trying to do is beat your competition. Mm-hmm. But as a navigator, how do you make yourself better than other navigators? It'd be fascinating for people to hear this. So they probably never thought about the fact that the person that rides shotgun needs to be as good within their own field as the driver, don't they? They do. And I think in road rallying terms, where I started, it's, it was a tremendous discipline for any good co-driver because it's open roads. You're not like a stage rally where you're following the arrows. And if you've got somebody just sat there on a stage event... You know, a driver can make up for a lot of um, the uh, inability of the co-driver because you can see a little bit and drive to your own ability. In road rallying, you have to be told where the slot is. You know, you can't afford to overshoot because you're losing vital seconds. You know, and you could be going, there's no point in going four miles down the road the wrong way because by the time you come back, that's eight miles and you've lost all your time. So all the emphasis was heavily based on the, how good the navigator was. 
And, and that's where I started. And when I started doing motor news events, you know, when road events really were big, you know, it was a um, tremendous satisfaction to be able to plot a 200-mile route in 45 minutes, you know, go and have a cup of tea and relax, knowing full well exactly where you're going to go. And you could be blasting down roads you'd have, you've never been on before and be able to pinpoint a slot within 50 yards off the map you know, reading the corners. So, so of the do map you do you think you have an unnatural ability to 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 generate something three dimensional from a map? Because I think some people do. Yeah. I mean, some people look at, like one of my kids is amazing with a map. Another mm. one actually, just, I think I know, just sees a load of ones and noughts and has got no idea what the information coming off it is. I think you must have something there that's not normal. Absolutely. I, I can. You can kind of, if you're going to go somewhere. You, you've never been before. I can look at the map on the uh, on on the computer, right? Kind of, yeah. We get off at of that roundabout, yeah. We're turning right, and then we're taking that slot north, and then at the top, there's a, you know, it's all there. Yeah. And you can kind of feel your way, and and it's it's having that unnatural ability to be able to find your way, and you don't realise how useful that is until. You have the start of Acropolis rally in the middle of Athens and you're trying to get out of Athens. Yeah. You know, it's the worst place in the world to drive and navigate. But you have a sixth sense, you know, and you, you, you make it work. OK, so you've, you've joined this road rally scene. You mentioned the motoring news rallies. Mm. Um, and it's quite clear that, that you've got something others haven't. So I'm looking back through some biographical stuff. There's a, there's a name that comes up early on. Steve Davies seems to be a... Mm. Was that the first person you felt you had proper success with? Yes, well, yes, really. From from Abergavenny, an Abergavenny lad as well. Um, he, he started with 1,300 escorts. And then RS2000s, we went right the way up to Motor News with Steve. And we, we were the... Well, he was the youngest driver ever to win a Motor News event. And um, we won probably the event of all road rallies at that time. It was the Kilwendig down in West Wales where you'd have a 200-mile route within a 12-mile radius of a of the start town, you know, back and forth, ducking and diving, hairpins, slot lefts, T-junctions, you know, and, you know, it was a whole... Was it fun or was it pressure? Oh, it was great fun for me. Yeah. You know, and I, I, th- I think... I think that when you... If you're going to be good at something, if you have to think hard and worry about it, you're not necessarily on the road to success. It's having that inner confidence just to say, this is okay, this yeah. is good, relax. And, you know, we'll talk later my career about the drivers that I've been with. They all kind of had that inner ability to know they could do it and not even have to think about it. It mm. just happened. So when did, you, when did you take the step to becoming a professional? When, when did it become your livelihood? The big step... I mean, I had my first, I think I had 5,000 quid in 1989, but I was still working at that point. But that was my first step into a professional team, which was with GM Dealer Sport, driving with a chap from uh, Kendall called Dave Metcalf. Yeah. The car control that that guy had, and we were using their 1600 Nova, you would not have thought it's... Anybody could get the car that sideways and I, put, I found a clip of a Nova being driven in a truly ludicrous fashion on Instagram and forwarded it, going, what the fuck is this? And someone said, that's Dave Metcalf. That's Go him. back and Google him. Yeah. Jesus, what was he doing? Oh, he was he, like Ragnotti, wasn't he? He was basically Ragnotti's standard lunacy in a front-wheel drive yeah. car. I mean, 
to be honest, Jean Ragnotti, you've hit the nail on the head. He's probably the only other guy I've seen that has the front-wheel drive control of Dave Metcalf. And, you know, we'd be doing the Manx. I think our best result that year was the Manx International, a full-on tarmac event, and three cars beat us, which were all the factory Ford Sierra Cosworths. <laughs> and then we had a mass of Sierra Cosworths behind us, driven by talented amateurs, you know, and there's the 1600 Nova. It was like they carried us up on the stage. like, And that was my first feeling of like, Christ, this is incredible. What does he do now, Dave McCall? He's dead, unfortunately. Oh, bloody hell. Sorry. Yeah, he's dead, unfortunately. Oh. You know, um, he died in testing a testing a, a rally car. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a shame. Sorry. But, I mean, if, if he'd have had a true opportunity in a world car, he would have been stupendous. But honestly, the angles... We, I remember my herring. There was a downhill hairpin right. We came around this long, flat left-hander. And, you know, the speed was just off the scale. And, you know, he's got, we're going past the slot backwards and then straight up the slot. You know, nobody in their right mind would have the confidence to do that. But Dave would. So I love the way that you're already speaking unguardedly about sitting next to someone who's driving in a manner that most human beings couldn't mm. deal with. Clearly, it didn't worry you. When did, when did you start to... At this point, you're not thinking about it. You just want to be with the guy that's going to win, don't you? Yes, absolutely. And, yeah, I, I think it's... Anybody that's a driver would think that I'm a complete lunatic. But, you know, with the people that I've sat with, generally are exceptionally talented. You know, and these guys don't want to hurt themselves. You know, they're not absolute lunatics, and it's an accident on every corner waiting to happen. You know, we're talking guys who are pushing things to the limit and have complete car control. And, and you know, the satisfaction you get when they've had a great stage time and you've done the pace notes perfectly and the whole thing gels together, you know, it's tremendous satisfaction from, from the passenger seat. And I never thought about it because with some guys, if you thought about it, you already have read a pace note too late. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's the point. You're, you're locked into what you're doing. You're feeling where you are on the road through the seat of your pants. And, you know, you're delivering those notes because it's absolutely vital. One, to let them go as fast as they can go. But two, keep them on the road. So Dave Metcalf, 89, mm. GM dealer, dealer sport. sport. Um, where do you go after that? Well, after that, I was teammates with Malcolm Wilson. And... Um, Malcolm was driving an Astra at that time, and the year after, he had an opportunity with Ford at Borum, the original Ford Motorsport base um, in Essex. And Malcolm came to me and said, how do you fancy this? You know, he said, We've got, I've got a great opportunity. It's a two-year contract. And, you know, of course, I had to say yes. I mean, that was, that was it. I was full-time at that point. So we, we did British Championship in 1990, doing some test and development work for the probably what is the most ungainly looking Group A car they ever made, the Sierra Sapphire Cosworth. Yeah. And um, we did the test and development for that. And then starting with, um, I think, three World Championship rallies then in uh, f starting with Thousand Lakes, uh, San Remo, and then Rally GB. So you, are you competing in a Sierra... And developing the Sapphire, or you're already competing in the Sapphire at that well, point? No, we, we, we do British Championship in a two-wheel drive Sapphire. Yeah. And then doing the development work initially with a four-wheel drive car, and then some three World Championship events at the end of 1990, then leading into five or six events 
I think it was in in ninety one. Just to, to to interrupt there slightly for people that love car magazines, because many of you that listen to this do love car magazines. That car is um is is very relevant because if you remember the late great Russell Bulgin, he wrote one of his most famous articles, which begins, "I'm I, I'm feeling a bit Malcolm today," and they lent him. Was it Q eight sponsored? Yes, it was. Q eight sponsored Sapphire, and they lent mm. it to this journalist to go and use for a day on the road because had number plates. Mm. And he opens up the glove box, and it just, the the ECU just says Malcolm on it. It's brilliant. <laughs> so and he wrote this amazing story about I'm feeling a bit Malcolm today. But it's lovely to complete the circle because that was the car that you sat in shotgun for however long. And I tell you, out of all the road cars that I ever had as a company vehicle, that was probably one of the best cars I ever They're had. They're just naughty, weren't they? Yeah, a lot of power. It handled well. You could put five people in the car with all the luggage in the boot, and I mean, it was just the perfect scenario. But um, yeah, I so, mean, you've, so was, you've done, you've done, you've done British Championship. How did you get on? We were beaten by David Llewellyn, and at that time, David Llewellyn was run by my now landlord, Phil Collins, and the cars were run out of my unit where you've just been and the unit next door. So this was Toyota <laughs> Team enemy. GB base, and um, so yeah, this the, the, he was a four wheel drive car driving exceptionally well, and we were only in a two wheel drive car. We had no chance really. But, you know, it was a stepping stone to bigger and better things. And, you know, it was, it was all about the World Championship, really. And, and uh, other than Wales Rally GB, I'd never competed outside of Britain, other than some odd events. So what was your first, of those three rallies that you had, World Rally Championship rallies, what was, your first, what was the first one? Thousand Lakes was the first one. And my God, what an event. <laughs> you know, and, and you sit with, and, and no disrespect, Malcolm's a top flight driver. You know, but that event is so off the scale for anybody that's not used to it. And in its pomp, then, what was the entry? It must have been a couple hundred cars, wasn't it? Yeah, well, probably at least, yeah. at least. But you, you know, you would have had, you know, at that time, ninety. Yeah, well, you would have had your Lancias, your, you know, Toyota would have been there with a one six five, and you know, you had top flight drivers at that point. You know, but driving in Finland is so completely different to anywhere else because. You know, for a co-driver, it was pretty difficult to keep your concentration levels there because you have this undulating gravel roads at real high speed and you could have this monstrous jump into a tricky right-left scenario, you know, and the likes of the Finns would know it, inch perfect. But anybody else has got to back off. They've got to take it easy. You know, and we were probably blasted out of the water by, by these locals. But it was a great experience nonetheless. And for your skill and for your craft, how did you go about it? Did you try and meet some of the local co-drivers to try and talk to them? Or was it more of a hunker-down mentality, just do the best you could? Because you're a bit of a sponge. You're you're a clever bloke. Mm. and I'm sure that you wanted to go and soak up information. But people aren't always willing to deliver it, are they? Or to share it? No, not really. And I, I, I think that... You know, I think we do some coaching now with Motorsport UK with young co-drivers and it's all about pre-event preparation and attention to detail. So you're doing your homework, you're trying to find videos, you're trying to look at it, to get a feeling of what you're But there's none of that for you. You can no. go on YouTube and have a look at onboards, could you? No, not at that time, no. But, you know, you try to do as best you can buying DVDs or videos. And, you know, you kind of got a feeling for it. But we did have teammates. We had Penty Rickler was our teammate. Although he had an Irish co-driver in Ronan McNamee, and I don't think Ronan necessarily was the best of educators because it was more a laugh a minute. Was Penty controllable or not? I mean, he was uh, yeah. out there, wasn't he? He was all right. He was all right. But as it happened, 
you know, in the Sierra, I'm sorry, going away from our story yeah. now, we did the second rally we did was in San Remo. And the first stages of San Remo were just north of the city in the mountains at night. And we had these side exhausts they fitted on the car, a bit disconcerting, because I kept having these flames shooting 20 feet out of the side of the car. And what they hadn't put enough heat protection on the plastic sills that we had on the car. Well, Penty's car caught fire. <laughs> so Penty dived out of the car trying to get the... Uh, the fire extinguisher out and unfortunately pulled his back and he was in quite a, bad, a lot of bad pain because trying to get the hand held out from behind his seat and as it happened you know he made a claim against Ford Motor Company insurance for this well you know as a professional driver you don't do these things and surprisingly enough he never drove the Ford again <laughs> but that was that was that was penty for you he but. um so when he obviously retired and, and um, wanted to carry on earning a few quid, he had, the, he had this driving school mm. later on. And when I started being a journalist, he came along to one of our show how good you can drive challenges on auto car magazine. We called it the Sideways Challenge. Yeah. And he, everyone turned up, big racing drivers. Up, a young Lewis Hamilton turned up age 16. We had, it was an amazing event, the last one that we did. And we had Penty along. And he turned up um, looking like he'd not slept for a couple of days, bless him. And... Um, he, uh, to demonstrate his car control, he had turned up in a front-wheel drive Mitsubishi Galant and did a lap of the steering pad. We had to do a lap of this entire circle sideways in a BMW M car. And he did it sideways with the handbrake on, front-wheel drive in his Galant, with just, just pulling the bar as he could. Did a whole lap in his front-wheel drive car and everyone just stood there going... Of course, none of the young guys knew who he was. He just got out and went, hello, I'm Pantiric. Hello. <laughs> absolute legend. Yeah. But, but tremendous driver. And, and also, a, a, had a charismatic beyond belief. He mm. had this, I can remember Colin Goodwin, who's going to come on this soon, um, this podcast soon, turned around to me and said, he has the conviction that makes you believe he could solve third world debt with a handbrake. Yes, <laughs> he's just, he's just, yes. <laughs> Can I tell you a story about go on. Ronan McNamee? Go on, go on. And Ronan, during the re one of these recces, he was talking about... At one time, they drove for GM Dealer Sport, and they were sponsored by British Telecom, Yellow and Blue Astra. Yes. And they, they were doing the... With Ulster the T with the dots on it. That's yeah. right, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And they were doing Ulster Rally, and they were staying at the most bombed hotel in Belfast, <laughs> being the Europa. So Ronan, in his wicked... Um, style told Penty, listen, this is a pretty serious place here. This is the most bombed hotel in <laughs> Belfast. And, you know, it's it's quite serious at the moment. There's a lot of unrest in the city against, uh, you know, and, and bombing is a real possibility. So what you have to do, you know, is, is you have to sleep on the floor. So you need to prepare your blankets and stuff. And then you need to get, you need to get the mattress off the bed and you need to sleep underneath the mattress it's the only way you're going to protect yourself anyway penty said oh right okay he was all very serious so penty says i think i have to go to bed i have to go and prepare my room <laughs> so off he goes so ronan mcnamee now gives him about an hour or something down in the bar gets somebody gets one of the local guys to come and open up the room and there's penty on the floor with his mattress on top of him <laughs> It was so funny, so fun. But the way Ronan told the story, but he took it all in. He he just soaked it up. 
We just slept with the mattress on yeah, top. He slept on the floor with the mattress on the top of him. Anyway, he jumped back into bed. <laughs> after that, but, but it was so funny. God. Anyway, but that's... He was um, a big boy in the car as well, wasn't he? Remember, he was. you watched those old sort of... Uh, there was the, the, mobile, the mobile one championship thing they that's did, right, which yeah. is sort of 89, 90, or was it 91 around 89, then? 90. Um, he's in that, mm. and he's just massive. He just yeah. he fills the car up, doesn't he, Penty? But it, he was... I, th- I think so many Finns are exceptionally naturally talented. And I think a lot of European drivers have to work hard to be fast. Yeah. And you can, you can tell that in the way that they're driving in the car. And I was lucky enough through my career to sit with two exceptionally naturally talented people we'll cover a bit later. But when you're in the car, everything's like slow motion. But then you could look at a Carlos Sainz, who's equally as fast in the day, but you can see he's working hard and the sweat is dripping off him. And his testing is like to the extreme, to the point of almost not sort of making sure everything is covered, but not necessarily being any better for it. And, And Penty was one of these guys that was just playing with the car. It was just dancing you know, with his, with the pedals and the steering, and you know, you just make it just sing, and it, it's such a, such a pleasure. And and now I've done a little bit of driving recently, you know, I'm behind the wheel thinking, Christ, what am I supposed to do here? You know, in this situation. But when you're in the passenger seat, my whole career has been sat next to some of the best drivers in the world through all the testing and development work that we've done. You know, and you have such a tremendous ability to feel the car from the passenger seat without having to think about the driving. And, um, you know, I can, when I sit with somebody, I'm far more sensitive to what they're doing and seeing how they perform as much as me just reading the notes and, and going along. And I mean, I've been lucky in my career to sit with some wonderful people. So let's start with those then. So 93 is your first year in World Rally Championship, or was it 92? Well, no, no, it would have been 90 with Malcolm, okay, 93 sorry. and 91. Yeah. yeah. But then at the end of 1991, I had an opportunity to go to the then Toyota Team Europe. Right. Which was my first experience of the major powerhouse of, of the World Championship at that time. Them and Lancia, those were the two. They were kids. the money spenders, weren't they? They were the, they were the kiddies. And they asked me to go and do a whole test and development program for the ST185 Celica for Africa with a Swedish driver called Mikael Eriksson. Now, Mikael at that time had won two or three world championship rallies, I think. So December, we went out and did this test and development program. Um, We spent three weeks in campsites and going off on safaris and... You know, that whole experience was just mind-blowing, having never been to Africa before, and the conditions we had to drive against, to then coming home for Christmas, going straight back out early in the new year, to then having had this test car rebuilt, doing a 5,000-kilometre loop of the, of the route as a, as a reconnaissance, to then going to the airport to meet this Antonov plane that's just arrived there. I mean, the, what, how much money are they spending? I know. An Antonov plane just rocks up on the tarmac and they the whole nose of this thing opens and out the front comes, you know, a brand new 185 rally car with all the, the fresh bits that they've decided from the test they want with two full service vans, two um, 
proper prepared uh, Toyota Land Cruisers or chase cars and a helicopter. <laughs> so the helicopter's our spotter, you see. We've got to have a spotter there because the roads are open. Yeah. And um, Christ, this is for us. So they said, right, Nick, you've got a couple of days and we're just going to go, go through everything, pack the vans, make sure everything's right. And then we're going to do a full rehearsal of the whole rally route. So what they've, they've got the schedule off the organisers and they've worked out looking at the timings and everything else. Redo it, we're competitive on all the sections, but then maybe we'd come to a service point where you'd have five minutes. So right, we'd have five minute service. Stop. Maybe we'd have to wait there 15 minutes to let the vans go ahead to make sure they were in the next spot ready for us. So it was like this for 5,000 kilometres and we've got the helicopter spotting up above us with the engineer. So he's warning us of animals, cars, people, buses, whatever it may be. So we did that. Then we did a bit of testing. Then we had a few days off and then we went and did it all again. So that was 5,000 kilometres twice competitively. And then we went, they let us go home for a week or so. And then we had to go back then to do the reconnaissance for the rally proper. Because Carlos and, and Carlos and uh, Marco Allen were the main drivers at that time. So then we go back then to do a recce of the whole 5,000 kilometre route again. So we're 15,000 kilometres in now already. Yeah, plus all the testing we've done, mind you. But then you do it twice. But Mikael said, no, I'm not going to do this again. I've been around this route enough. So he went off on holidays down to Mombasa. Unfortunately, Mikael never drove for the team again because Uwe Anderson took offence to that. He's paid here to go and... You're joking? No, he never drove again in the World Championship for anybody. But it was lucky that Mikael did do that because Lewis Moyer went down with a tremendous fever, you see. I'm leading into another story here. Yeah. Am I taking up all your space? Is this all right? This, Carry on. The, the whole, this podcast is about you. <laughs> they, they know about me. We don't. I don't need to talk, mate. Normally I have to talk more. The great thing about you, Nicholas Christ, is that you you, you bloody talk for it's England. Late, it's wonderful. Late to fuse and off but before, we go. Before we go, before we go, before we get on with this next bit, I want to just stop and I, occasionally we'll punctuate here. Nicky Grist, boy from Evervale, mm. who was who fancied himself as being a golfer. Hmm. who was knocking about in a Riley. Hmm. Are you not stopping and going, what the fuck has happened here? How have I... I'm, I'm looking at Antonov opening up. I'm dealing with a car company that's spending tens, if not hundreds of millions, hmm. to do this. Hmm. And I'm now at the coalface. So what do you... put On a personal level, what, what's going through your mind? You're earning some money. Yeah. You tell us. You know, you probably haven't talked about this before, but what are you thinking? Um, to be honest, I was just on a crest of a wave. Yeah. I mean... I was just doing my job. I was doing it the way that I wanted to do it within the confines of of the car and the rules and everything else. I was as prepared as ever, but I was on this crest of a wave and I wasn't really thinking about the past. I was thinking about the future and the possibilities and I was just high on the moment. You know, and, it, and you know, nowadays, probably a lot of the co-drivers in the World Championship would have chopped their right and left arm off to do what I've done in terms of the mileage and everything because the World Championships now is is just like nothing. It's a little sprint, isn't it? It's nothing. Yeah. You know, they're going back to do safari now. Well, it'll it'll end up being in Lord Delamere's estate up at Elementite. Yeah. We had, we had a 75-kilometre section in there on one rally. But the whole route will be based in this estate. 
where they'll get rid of all the people, they'll get rid of all the animals, as, as many animals as they can. You will have special stages. It probably would have to be smooth because probably, you know, they won't, cars can't deal the with cars it. can't deal with it anymore. They won't want to re-engineer it. You know, and, and but then, you know, I, I did the route so many times that, I mean, I did... I've never been to Africa before, and before I knew it, I'd probably done 25,000, 30,000 kilometres of high-speed motoring in the world's best rally car with all the team, all the spares that you wanted, the best of everything. And, I mean, it was it was a bit of a wow moment, I suppose, when you think about it yeah. now. But, but you don't know it. You never you know about wow moments in your no, life, do you, no, at you the don't. time? Not until you go back and you think about it. You know, and, and it's about you know, collecting memorabilia or something happened that you broke something and, Jesus, I wish I'd kept that suspension on now. That was a really key point in this rally. And, you know, and you think about all those things and, you know, but at the time you don't think about it. It's all about get going, winning, fastest time, getting the service, making sure I'm checking out on time. It's all happening. Lewis Moyer then comes down with a cold. Oh, yes, right. We'll go back to that story. So, I, the, he's on holiday. I've done all my notes, so I'm just lazing at the Serena Hotel in the middle of Nairobi. And there's Carla Sainz pacing up and down the uh, the pool, being really anxious. Lewis has got the most dreadful cold. He's in bed. He can't go anywhere. And I said, Carlos, I said, um, I said, you look a bit, you know, apprehensive. What's going on? He said, well, we've got a 250-kilometre section that we haven't done. And he said, I'm just worried we won't be able to see this section before we go in. Well, of course, on the scale of that rally, 250 kilometres are the worst conditions. You have to drive the whole lot slow. So potentially he could have lost 20, 30 minutes in there, if not more. And I said, well, listen, I said, I can't read or write Spanish pace notes. But I said, why don't we? I know the section. Why don't we go into town? Let's buy a tape recorder. And I said, we'll buy some load of batteries and cassettes. And I said, we'll just give you the mic onto your headset. And I said, I'll just show you the way to go and just dictate the notes onto tape recorder. He said, that's a very good idea. That's a very good idea. So off we go and we buy one of these ancient bloody video recorders. So I'm sat in the seat now and we're going to the workshop because TT had a permanent workshop in, in Nairobi, which... <laughs> And it was about 40, 50 people in there all the time. And so I navigated him down out of the, past the airport, down to a place called Sultan Hamid, turned left into the section. Right, the start is here. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I know where the junctions are. I'll navigate you around the junctions, but you're going to have to sort everything else out. So we're driving the section now and he's going like hell. Well, you can imagine when you're making pace notes in a proper rally car, you you can only go as fast as the co-driver can write. Yes. And when the conditions are like this, you're going to have to be sensible. So now he's going like hell, you know, and he's... What car are you in? In a full Group A... Are you? Group A rally car. Yeah. Because, you know, latter years, they changed recce cars to modified road cars. But back then... Well, they yeah, back then you could use a full rally car, which you have to have. But it, it eats road cars, this place. Yeah. Eats them. And um, so off we go, and then these blah 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 blah, blah mass, blah, blah, dos, tres, blah blah blah, blah, blah Fernando, blah blah, blah. <laughs> and then next minute, boom, bang, boosh, 
No, 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 no. <laughs> off we go again. So we went, did this section eventually, got back, and he says, right, Lewis, here's the tape recorder. You just rewrite this. And they managed, he got well enough just to have one afternoon, which they went and did these 250 kilometers. And he said they were the best notes he ever made because they were made at full speed. And so I saved, fortunately for him, I think he went on to win that rally. And he went on to win the World Championship that year too. Did he send you a cup of tea to say thank you? No, probably not. <laughs> I can't remember. I don't think nothing. So, so that's, is that 91 there? That would have been 92. Okay, 92. So... And then I went from there. And that's... Did that... I presume Carlos must have fed back to Toyota that you'd been a superhero and that didn't do your standing within Toyota any harm at all? Not at all. Not at all. But, you know, I had a contract with the team, but I didn't have a driver. Although we had two other rallies in our programme. But, of course, he He'd was gone. pushed aside. He was gone. So uh, it opened my eyes a little bit into other things. And, and Uwe rang me, Uwe Anderson rang me and said, you know, would you help and come and do a service schedule for us for um, Acropolis Rally and maybe Argentina? And I said, yeah, I don't mind. So but what, a lot of people would be insulted by that because they, they've got one goal, and that is to get into a championship winning car with a great driver. It's interesting that when you when you're asked to go and do a service schedule, you're you're saying that's fine. Your reaction wasn't that's beneath me. No, not at all. But it's better than sat at home doing nothing. Yeah, you know, and and I I think it's important for any youngster or anybody that wants to get on in the sport. If you don't have a drive, just go and hang out, speak to everybody, be speak there. to people, be there, show your face, introduce yourself. You know, it makes a difference. And I thought, well, let's let me get out there, but. Tremendous experience doing these service schedules, and that really opened up my eyes into trying to coordinate 15 service vans, six tyre trucks, two helicopters, two motorhomes. What else did we have? Six mechanics cars, two chase cars, management cars, and everything else. And you have to coordinate this in a part of the world where the maps you may as well use as toilet paper because they just have no resemblance to where you are. The, the names on the map don't res match the signs or the villages that you're entering. It's chaos. So you have to make road books for everybody. So every service vehicle had this, a complete dossier of everybody's routes. So if you had to chop and change the schedule, everybody had a route to go from here to there. Or... And you're a detail man, aren't you? People yeah. can't see where we are now, but... you. Your work premises are immaculate. Mm. This, you know, every, even the display cabinets downstairs. And I can tell that if you walk in and something's moved, you're like, get that back where it was. Yeah. So, so that that that's a kind of that's a, an activity for you that would have been actually quite pleasurable, wouldn't it? Yes. So they're just making it right. Yes, absolutely. And and I I reveled in it really, but it takes four weeks to do it because you, it was two weeks on the ground doing it all and then it was two weeks putting it all together and you didn't have excel spreadsheets then you're typing it out and then photocopying it and hand drawing stuff and you know but it was it was a tremendous experience but i sat with uwe anderson and i, I can't say this necessarily made my career but it gave me other opportunities that we were on one part of the route and uwe was driving i was navigating and i said oh service three is a bit late he said, what do you mean? And I said, you should have been over the top of that hill there and you could see the road coming over this hill. He said, who's in service three? And I said, oh, it's Paddy, somebody other than another Irish chap. No, oh, typical Irish, he said. Anyway, next minute, here comes the vehicle over the top of the hill. I said, oh, that's okay. 
he's got time enough, he's going to get to his next point. Uwe said, very good, he said. He said, um, you're a very good coordinator. I said, Uwe, I'm a much better co-driver. <laughs> and, you know, later they wanted me to do Argentina, so I did Argentina completely by myself in terms of schedule work. And at the end of that year, I had the opportunity, which was the breakthrough for me, and I was in a negotiation with U.R. Kankinen at the end of 92. Um, but after some negotiation, it ended up, he decided he was going to stick with U.R. Pirinen, his present co-driver. So that was a bit of a shame because you are three-time world champion, driving for Toyota in 1993. It would have been a fantastic opportunity. But then Uwe said to Armin Schwarz, listen, I know you're going to Mitsubishi. If you want a good co-driver, Nick's your man. And then, so I joined Mitsubishi in the first part of 93. Um, but little did I know what was going to come later in the year, which was going to completely change my whole career, really. This is a very good place to take. We take a break always, Nicky. I'm not, not trying to cut you off here. So we, I'm going to say, um, go and have a comfort break, guys. Go and get some um, Jaffa Cakes is the biscuit of choice, by the way, today. Jaffa Cakes, comfort break. Come back, because the next part is the juicy bit. It'll be a load of Yuha Kankinen, a lot of Colin McRae, um, and, and hopefully some, some more stories from Mickey. So we'll see you in a minute. Bye-bye. Collecting cars. The safe, smart and simple way to buy and sell collectible cars. An online auction platform for the UK and Europe. Follow us on Instagram at Collecting Cars and also CollectingCars.com. Welcome to the CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Uh, welcome back. I hope um, I hope your bladders are empty, and I hope that you enjoyed the Jaffa cakes because they are the biscuit of choice this month. Um, so, welcome back to um, the Collecting Cars podcast with myself, Chris Harris, and Nikki Grist. Um, I'm loving this. I've just sit, sit, pull, pull the string on his back and let him go. So, we've got <laughs> to the end of '92. We're beginning '93, and Mitsubishi is the manufacturer now. Yeah. It was a small-time programme. We were only going to do seven events, I think, in total. The car was an Evo, was it an Evo 2? It, it was a Lancer 1. It was the yeah. very first Lancer. It wasn't even an Evo at that point. So, you know, they took the Galant and basically put it into, effectively, a smaller body shell. And, and you know, it was a pretty little car, and the engine was always a great strong point in the Mitsubishi, as it is nowadays. A lot of people are using that engine. So, you know, the package was basically not bad. And we started off with Monte Carlo Rally. But, of course, you know, I kind of overcome the disappointment of not being able to get the Kankinen seat. But, okay, at who, least I'm you, being... Who are you with now? Armin Schwarz. You're with Armin Schwarz, right, okay, yeah. Um, you know, because Uwe pushed me that way. But, you know, at least I'd been considered. Yeah. So there's an opportunity yeah. at some point in the future. And Armin, super handy. Yes, yeah, yeah, tremendous car control. Always remember him in that Skoda in the later years, yeah. far more sideways than he needed to be. <laughs> Most definitely, yeah. and that was that was arm into the fore, really. Yeah. I mean, I think if he could have squared things up a little bit, he would have probably <laughs> been a lot faster. But you know, that's that that was arm in. But you know, nice guy. I had to sign a contract, and I have to speak German. And I said, arm in. I said, we're speaking English. Your notes are in English. Yes, he said, this is a management thing. Don't worry about it. Obviously. How is your German, Nicky? Be uh, good, Nicky. Nicht, nicht gut. 
Nick's so good. Nick's yeah. good. <laughs> so anyway, I've, you know, I, I started to learn German. And then after a few weeks, and I said, I mean, do I really need to speak German? No, you don't. I said, thanks. Because it was just one of these clauses. It's interesting, that, you signed the contract full well, but knowing it involved something you couldn't do, but you could sort out afterwards. Yes. That's the mentality of that era, though, wasn't it? You wouldn't yeah. do that now, would no, you? No, not at all. Everything has to be clear yeah. and concise. Even the rules of rallying, you know, there was a blind eye turned to certain stupid rules, but that's another story. But, you know, he said, no, you don't need to do it. It was only in case the relationship didn't bond and they had a get-out clause. Yeah. That's basically what it was. Yeah. So he said, don't worry about it. So we didn't, and we just carried on. Uh, stupidly, I, I'd made my wedding arrangements based on what I'd done in 92, and this was a bit of a sticking point and did cause a, a little bit of an issue because I started the recce for two days in Portugal. I had to fly home on the um, Thursday night so then to do all the prep work and the final preparation for the wedding, which was on the Saturday. And then on Sunday, it was, bye! <laughs> Off I went back to Portugal again to do the rally. Well, started, you mean, to go on. At least she was prepared for what she life was, was going to be like. She was, poor lover. She's, <laughs> she's been living rallying for the last 20, 35 years, but we're still together, so it can't be that bad. But... Um, yeah, so we were kind of going through the motions with Armin and, you know, we weren't up there. We weren't in a position of winning rallies. But, you know, I was doing Monte Carlo again. I did Rally Portugal again. Um, and then, you know, I can't remember what the last event was I did with Armin before. I was at home, chilled out in bed. The wife was in work. And I had this phone call from my manager at nine o'clock in the morning. And he said... Um, how do you fancy uh, doing Argentina? And I said, I'd love to, Mike, but I said, hang on, the recce's already started, hasn't it? He said, yeah, it is. And I said, with who? And he said, well, listen, it's it's bad news. He said, you are Pyrenees at a brain hemorrhage. Um, and basically, they'd finished their day's recce. They were going to meet for, for, for a meal. And you I went down to the hotel and he wasn't... Um, he wasn't in reception, so he thought, well, it's a bit strange. Anyway, went back and had you seen Perrin? No. In the, in the U.S., I thought, oh, probably he's just engrossed in work, never done this before. Next morning, got up for breakfast, still no U.S. Perrin. So then started a panic. So then he got the manager, and there he was, poor chap, collapsed on the floor. Fortunately for him, he was in a place called Vila Carlos Pass, which is close to Cordoba, and one of the leading brain surgeons at that time, was in Cordoba Hospital. So they rushed him down to hospital and, and he did survive. But, of course, it meant that Yuha was in and the it middle. Was unrelated to his activity in the a car. It was absolutely. Just, it was just God could, yeah. Yes, it was just one of those things. But, of course, while certainly not good for him, it was brilliant for me because, you know, Yuha wanted me. And I said, well, yeah, great, I'd love it. But what about my contract? He said, well, I've already put a phone call in with Mitsubishi just prepare yourself to go. But he said, you know, if you're going to go, you'll probably go and do Argentina and then straight off the back of that, go straight to New Zealand as well. So it's two rallies. So I thought, right, that's fine. So Did you find Armin yourself or leave it to the management? No, I left it to the management. Never spoke to Armin at all. So, of course, he had to go to Andrew Cowan, who's recently just passed away, and just said, listen, this is the situation. What's the chances of borrowing Nicky for a couple of, couple of rallies? 
So um, I had to sit tight, pack my bags. Next minute, I had a phone call. Right, Nick, you're flying out of, you know, Heathrow at two o'clock in the afternoon. He said, get on the road, pick your tickets up. So I went down to Newport, met the wife and give her a kiss and a cuddle in the car park. Bye, darling, see you in about, see you in, in about eight weeks or whatever it was. <laughs> Um, it was probably more like six weeks, but off I went, and I went up to the airport and picked up my ticket from um, British Airways, and I was flying to Paris, and then I get to Paris, and then I had to pick up another ticket, Aerolineas Argentina, get my ticket. Christ, it's first class! Yeah, I thought, oh, I must have made it now! <laughs> so now I'm flying first class, and you know, I had a job to do at the other end, but... I just had to have a glass of Krug. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I had to have everything. And, and I didn't want to sleep. I just wanted to have all this first-class service. I did manage to get my head down for an hour. And then I took one of the small regional airlines up to Cordoba, where somebody picked us up, took me to the hotel, and walk into this hotel reception. And here's Kankan and sat there with an ashtray piled high with little cigarettes, loads of espresso coffee cups, road books, pace notebooks there. He said, come on, Boyle, we've got a job to do. So I said, right, give me a minute. I just went in, quick shower, change, got the road books, and we managed to get round every stage just twice. So um, fortunately, we had enough time to do that. And then we had to drive 400 kilometres north up to a place called Tucuman, where the rally started, and there was a super special, two-car super special. So we did this... Recky did the did the stage then in the evening and like me we're only bloody fastest so now here I am dragged in last minute to lead in my first world championship rally I thought Christ I can't believe this and so his driving so first of all tell us about the man so he, he's known to be an absolute legend he's sitting there on the bangers having his coffee so yeah. he's not a modern athlete in that respect no but, but I presume you know you're in the presence of greatness straight away absolutely I, I mean listen his He'd won so many rallies. He'd won three world championships at that point. So the guy was a talent. And I only got to know him later in the year, really, of the way that he thought and the way that he processes situations. But, you know, we, we, we were driving down from Villa Carlos Basso's a road section after that stage. And, you know, he's got the window down, window one inch. Cigars come out of a special pocket on the door side and lights the cigar up and he's just holding the cigar, driving, <laughs> blowing it out the window. And, you know, it's all just pretty chilled out and relaxed. And then we went to Park Ferme and then, you know, off we went next day, started again. And then we were fastest and fastest. And, you know, we basically ended up, you know, doing, winning this and leading this rally. We had a, a fair battle with Mickey Biazion. Um, with Ford at that point but we ended up we were leading the rally and the last day we were driving from the hotel to Carlos uh, to Cordoba where the Parfume was and the rental cars at that time in Argentina were dreadful the worst cars in the world you know you could probably get a better banger off a street corner than you could a rental car anyway there was an old Renault 9 thing it was horrendous so there was Didier Bernardo Celli, you are myself and George Donaldson, the coordinator. And it's five o'clock in the morning and we're leading my first World Championship rally. This is the last day. So we're going up this hill out of Carlos Pass. Next minute, the car starts jumping, you see. 
Christ, I'm, not, I'm on tender hooks, you can imagine. So I look at the petrol gauge. Fuck's sake, George, there's no fucking fuel in the car. <laughs> and he said, it'll be all right, he said, it'll be all right. And the car's jumping like this. Fuck's sake, George, let's get back and get... I said, it's 16 kilometres. It's five o'clock in the morning. We're not going to be necessarily be able to wave a car down. And he said, no, once we go over the top of this hill, it's all downhill, he said. We could cruise. And then you are chips up, chirps up and says, don't worry, boyo, it'll be okay, it's fine. And Didier in the, was next to me in the back seat saying, Nick, don't worry, we'll get there, it'll be fine. So this thing is chugging its way all the way to Park Fermi. So we eventually get there. And I said, fuck's sake, George, that is totally <laughs> irresponsible. That is absolutely, I'm going off on one now. He said, but I told you it'll be all right, didn't I? I said, yeah, you did, but that's not the point, is it? Yeah. Anyway, you are said, don't worry, boyo. He said, I knew it would be okay. I said, why? And then George looked at me. He said, Nick, the fuel gauge hasn't worked since I've since we've had it. He said, I filled it up last night. <laughs> All of them were in on this just to wind me up. So, of course, I was sh- I was pulling my hair out. But it was great. genius because it was a way of... They were trying to get to know you. They wanted to see... They were pressure testing you, weren't they? Well, they were in yeah. many ways. Well, yeah. they, they had as much pleasure out of it. Genius. You know, that the George Donaldson did. But um, anyway, as it was... But we if you were a driver, it, must, it would be massively reassuring for a Finn like him. He's Mr. Let's go with it. Mm. But it, it really helps to have someone that worries. If you're a non-warrior, you want to be partnered with a warrior, don't you? Yeah. I, I think sport has changed so much. It doesn't matter what it is. It's very intense now. Everything is, is intense. It's all about preparation. And yeah, I, I agree with that. But you have to have a little bit of lightheartedness Jesus, as well. Jesus, why are you doing it? Yeah, you've got to take that pressure away. And with you are, there was never pressure anyway. And, and there's no doubt, particularly in motorsport, if you remove the pressure, you go faster. Yes, you do. You do. You do. And, and, and that certainly came out. And later, we, we went on to win this rally and went and won the biggest trophy I'd ever won in my life. So almost as tall as me, which wouldn't take a lot of doing. Probably same size as you, actually, Chris. But uh, <laughs> I've got a um, height for radio. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was a massive trophy. Then they give us a check for five thousand dollars, which we spent on a party for the guys. So we just said, "Yeah, just party on." And um, then we went, flew over the South Pole via Ushuaia. With Aerolíneas Argentina well, to, to go to New Zealand. To New, to New Zealand. So you, you actually go over the South Pole. Yeah. How many flights do that? Not many. Not many. But but at that time we flew from Buenos Aires right down to Ushuaia, the tip of, well, the southernmost city, isn't it, in in the world before yeah. you get to Antarctica, yeah. and then flew over the South Pole to get there. So that was um, that was some experience. But then we did Argentina and then um, New, New Zealand. Zealand, which went okay. But we got thrashed by Colin McRae. And it was one stage, particularly Motu, where he took a minute out of us in 50 kilometres, which was unbelievable. Did you know Colin then? Only through basically competing you with him. You walk past and say hello to him. Yeah, yes. no, Because we, we, we competed against him with Malcolm in 1990. So you kind of knew each other. Yeah. And um, He took a minute out of you. A minute in 50 kilometres. Well, and, <laughs> and what does Yuha say at that point? Yuha said... He said, how did we do? I said, how did it go? He said, not too bad. I said, he's just taken one minute from us. He just <laughs> he just nodded. He said, very good, very good. But what could you say? You know, he just blasted everybody. But it was, it was, a, it was, 
Motu at that time was incredibly twisty. So it was a corner, 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 and something like 45 degrees or more, all continuous. And, um, you know, it's a bit like slalom in skiing. Yeah. You, you've got to get into that rhythm. Get into of, the rhythm, then, yeah. Yeah. And Colin just had this rhythm. And you know what the Subaru was like. You yeah. drove it the other day. You know, that car Short was... Base. Yeah, and it was... It's beautiful. It turns in nicely. But, you know, the whole car is a little bit rear-biased anyway. And it just lent itself to the perfect rally slalom. And he just tanned us big time. <laughs> And we, I think, I can't remember where we finished. Maybe finished second. But nevertheless, you know. So you'd, you got a P1 and a P2 from yeah. your first two times in this in this car. So how does the rest of 93 pan out? Well, then, of course, my next event was going to be, um, although the next event in the schedule was Thousand Lakes. But I had to go back to Mitsubishi for Thousand Lakes. So, shit, the one event I'd love to have done with you I would have been Thousand Lakes. So I was there with Armin. And he took another co-driver, a French guy, just to sit with him on this event. And Ewar went off and won the rally quite easily. And I was with Armin. I think we finished bottom end of the top ten. It was so frustrating. Um, but there were talks carrying on from um, that initial contract that I had, or contact with Mitsubishi. And, and Ewar actually bought my contract out in the end. He physically had to pay uh, Mitsubishi to to release me and pay some money to Armin as well to let me go. And Armin was okay with that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah? I think Did so. Did we talk to him again or not? Yeah, we kind of, yeah, I'm still, yeah. still talking to him. It was no, there was no bad animosity at all. But then, I was, of course, I was in with you full-time then. So, that's so 94, um, you're with, they've got the most money, probably haven't they, Toyota, have got the biggest budget. Uh, that's one of those, them and Lance here, I would have thought, yeah. in terms of... The, you're with you are, who is one of the three best... Probably the one he he's a he's considered to be a title contender. Yeah. Um, so you you've got there, haven't you? You're there. Oh, I am. I'm sort of. He's at that time was leading the world championship. So we went on and um, went to Australia and we won in Australia. So I'd never been there before and won that first time out. That was brilliant. And then we came to Wales Rally GB. Of course, it's my home round, starting yeah. from Birmingham, not relatively local. And the conditions were horrendous. It was probably the worst conditions we've had on Rally GB for many years, where it was exceptionally cold throughout the whole country. Some places there were a fair bit of snow. Other places are covering of snow, but completely frozen roads. Yeah. And we're not allowed spikes or anything like that for what we normally use in Sweden or Monte Carlo. So you're just on tyre compound. And I thought this is going to be this is going to be tough. But, you know, he just seemed to take things in his stride. And we had a fair battle with, with Colin. We went through the, um, the super specials, the Sunday stages. And then we started in Wales. And a friend of mine who went spectating up near Hafren said he walked up this track. And he said, God, it was as much as we could do to stand up. He said we were waiting for the cars to come. And there was the blowing of whistles. The cars are coming. And there were some course cars. And they're coming down there, toodling down and round the corner. And then he said these whistles started to blow. It was the first car on the road, which was us. And he said, all of a sudden, he said, you came around the corner. And it was like, they started to walk backwards. Fuck, they couldn't believe it. How fast can this guy go? But again, it was his experience in those conditions, not driving on the tracks, using all the bits of frozen gravel, sticking out of the sides of the road and using, finding the grip levels and using it. 
and honestly, we just went through that rally and, and Colin went off in Pandashaw, I think, up in Kielder and, you know, broke the radiator, handed the rally over to us then and we cruised to win my first Wales Rally GB as well. And that, to win your first World Championship was great, but then winning your first home one was even better, especially in such exceptional conditions. Yeah. And he, he made it look so easy. He made it look so easy. And I think that was the point, you know, with Yuha, you know, it nothing was a drama. What are you doing there? You don't have to do that. Relax, he said. We're here to enjoy ourselves. I said, well, this is the way I co-drive. Don't worry about that. You know, and that was him. He was so laid back and so happy with life. You know, it was just about driving the car and off you go. I think um, I've only ever met Ari Vatanen once and I got the sense that he had a sort of an approach to life, a view of life, a global view that could be used outside of motorsports. So when I found out he was an MEP and that, I thought, well, maybe there's a, a life in politics. And of course, when he got, he couldn't become the president of the FIA, I was hugely sorry because I just yes. thought he was a, he was and is a great man. I and mean, I get the sense that you feel that way about Yuha, that almost his attitude to life could be applied to other parts of life and make them better. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I think to be... To be great in politics, you have to be a certain individual. Yuha was a great man in his own right. Such a lovely chap to be with. The easiest person I've ever sat with, by far. And I don't think he would have had the drive, determination. He wouldn't be tough enough yeah. to, 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 to make any good. you know. And So the car control and the, the sense of being able to control the vehicle effortlessly. We'll come to Colin in a minute. Mm-hmm. Compare, begin to compare them. So, what, what, what are you? Are they profoundly different drivers to sit next to? Could you, could you sense which one was driving by doing the Pepsi Challenge, just by the feel of the car and the way it had been driven, or not? I think probably Yuhar and Colin were very similar. Yeah, very similar. I would say that Colin would be a lot braver in certain situations. Kankinen was a brilliant tactician. He knew how far to take it. Yes. And he'd know... We were doing a rally somewhere. I forget which one it was, and I don't know who we were up against. But I said uh, that such and such... I said, he's going well. He said, he is going well. He said, to be honest, Boyo, it's his rally. We finished second. You know, so how, how confident have you got to be to say that? Yeah. Yeah. We finished second, he said. So he just let him carry on with it. And he just concentrated his effort where he knew he could keep third place behind him, but he knew that 20 points was far better than trying to challenge for 25 points and getting and none. Getting none. Mm. And that's why I think he was such a brilliant world championship driver, because, you know, all right, what's happened in latter years with Ogier and Loeb, I mean, that's a different era. It's a different uh, sport almost. Yes, it is, and you can't compare it. But at that time, he was a four-time world champion from being... Fast winning rallies, but being bloody clever, staying out of trouble, and know as far as he would go as far as he felt comfortable he could push, but making sure he didn't sacrifice a championship. And you know, he won probably he's probably won more manufacturers' championships than he's won drivers' championships. Yeah, even the following year, Didier Oriel won the championship, but that came down to Yuha performing on the last rally to give Didier the championship, to beat that driver that Didier couldn't, wasn't fast enough to catch, but you had to stay in front of him to steal the points from him to give Didier the championship. 
Amazing. So, you know, he's, he's probably, he's helped other drivers win world championships too. So at this point, um, Colin is um, with Derek Ringer, isn't he? Yes, he is. Um, and uh, I think what's what's interesting is, I don't, I don't know Derek, I've never interviewed him, I'd love to do a podcast with him, but um, there's 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 an association between you and Colin that that is that a very strong legacy, to the point where I think a lot of people still think that he won his World Championship with you in the passenger mm. seat, which is unfair on Derek, because that was his World Championship. Mm. Um, so you, you go on from your you, how many years are you with you, Har? The last year, I had contract with him up until the end of 96. Yeah. But of course, 94, we just went through the motions. 95 was the story you've just told, where yeah. we were leading the championship excluded, but we still had another year in our contract. Did you? So, so, and they had to pay you? Yes. Yeah. But we were dabbling around. The team were banned, but we had effectively factory cars run by satellite teams. Yeah, okay. So Toyota Team Sweden run us on a few events. Yeah. And... Uh, Griffoni in Italy run us on a few odd stuff. Rally de Valais in, in Switzerland we did, and Ypres Rally in Belgium. Did some nice stuff. So 95, I'm not going to ask you to talk about the um, the full ins and outs of it, because that's not fair, but I believe you when you tell me that you always thought it was just an, an engine map, effectively as they would have, we'd call it now. You had no idea, did you? It, it was literally... The first time it came, reared its head, was in Australia. And we'd gone through a day or two days of rallying and it was just business as normal. And we were right up there. We were doing okay. And then we get to Langley Park in Australia where the service park was right next door. We had a quick service, fresh tyres, whatever it may be. And the engine guy came to us and said, right, guys, what we want you to do, this switch here, five seconds before you start, you just flick the switch. So we said, right, okay, what's this then? They said, oh, it's a new evolution of the engine and stuff. And this is, uh, you know, we'll we'll see how it works. I mean, they kind of knew how it was going to work. And then once we got to the start line, five, four, three, two, one, go. (laughs) Like, you know, this car is like two car lengths behind in a 200-meter sprint down the tarmac before you turned into the gravel. What were they thinking? I don't know. But the thing is, it's like doing your dirty washing in public. Yeah. Everybody knew, and, you know, the FIA were there, and team managers were there, and just saying, how does this happen? Nobody can have that much power. And, you know, we went off and did the next day, and we ended up finishing second, I think. But we got to Spain, and we were leading the World Championship. And there was us, we were comfortable, and we knew that we just needed a half-reasonable result, and then we could hang on no matter what Colin McRae did, because we knew he was fast in Rally GB, all we had to do was hang on their shirt tails, yeah. and with the World Championship was ours. And, you know, Yuha was, you know, he was quick on tarmac, but he was always trying to handbrake a lot of square corners. And I said, well, believe in the grip, and let's, you know, get on the power a bit earlier, and drive it through the corners, and we worked on something. And anyway, at the end of the first day of Catalonia Rally, Christ was leading his tarmac rally, you see, we're beating our teammate Didier Oriel, the tarmac expert, and you know Carla said to us, "Bloody hell, you boys are going." He said, we "Came round one hairpin." He said, "I could see your tire marks as I was broadside coming out of a hairpin." He said, "Like Christ, how can they power slide that far?" He couldn't understand, <laughs> and we just didn't. We didn't know. We just knew it was an evolution of the engine, and off we went. But then that night, when we went down to. Lorette de Mar in the service park 
there was uh, an FIE guard every car, FIE scrutineer at every car, Toyota car. So we had brand new turbos every day. Yeah. So one thing that wasn't 100%, although it was a brilliant setup that you got for the TV, there was two clamps. Ah, were there two clamps? And it was this bit, that bit, that's a bit, that's a bit. And they, they were looking at what was going on. You so, you had to, so you had to move both the right way. Yes, it was, yeah. like, it was the way that they were clamped or something. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, they changed the turbo, put the turbo down. Put the new turbo on, and then the scrutineer said, "We'll take that. Thank you very much." Oh shit! Can you imagine if you can you imagine if you were the spanner that had put it on the floor? Yeah. Well, I don't know, but I was. <laughs> I know the next morning we were completely oblivious to everything. We were having our our dinner. We came back, took the cars, put it in park for me, went to bed, get up the next morning, off we go, drive from Lorette de Mar up into the mountains, first service point, fresh tires, and you know gravel notes, right? Sorted the notes out. And I went to have a quick pee before we set off. And here's Dieter Bulling now, the chief engineer. You've never seen a man look so grey in all your life. You could swear he was going to die in about 20 minutes' time. Chain smoking, lighting one cigarette before the other's out. You know, he looked a worried man. Again, never thought anything of it. Everything okay, Dieter? Yes, everything's good, Nicky. Good luck today, good luck. I said, thank you, Dieter. Off we went, and unfortunately we crashed out that day. But then that night, of course, it did you all try and crash in a way that took out the turbocharger? <laughs> Fortunately, it, it did. It did land smack on top of the bonnet, on top of a big boulder. But it didn't matter. They had the evidence, all the evidence they wanted. Yeah. Obviously, they looked at it a lot closer. Although they would have checked the size of the restrictor before we started the rally, because they would have sealed it. So it was beautifully concealed. Yeah, and a wonderful piece of engineering. But it was a blatant cheat, yeah. and they got caught for it. And then that was it. That night, we were basically, Toyota were banned from the World Championship for God knows how much, a massive fine. We lost all our World Championship points. And then that was then game over for Toyota. But of course, led to this wonderful story that you relayed the other, the other day of the Carlos and um, Colin. Colin battle in Subaru. Mm. And, you know, I think while we didn't win a World Championship together with with you, ha, um, you know, I'm glad that Colin did, yeah. you know, because, you know, that, that'll go down in, in history, really. It was an amazing, it was an amazing chief. And I think also what needs to be said for those people that have bought the brilliant McClime book um, about Group A, which, which does live in the shadow of Group B uh, as an era of rallying and probably doesn't deserve to because there were more manufacturers, there were arguably more interesting cars, actually. There's a section at the back of the book about cheating, and it's quite clear that everyone was up to everything. And it was just Toyota that got nobbled first. Hmm. But there was there was all sorts going on, wasn't there? And we won't go into it, but it's quite... You know, motorsport is quite often about who doesn't get caught. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, I, in some respects, I feel a bit sorry for Toyota. And also, how do you square what happened with Japanese company culture? I mean, it must have been... I mean, the level of self-flagellation and oh. all that stuff. I mean, there must have been people just, you know, walking into... The middle of the motorway they must have yeah, been yeah, all over the Harry place Carrie yeah management i mean they were exceptionally proud individuals it, it must have been hard work you know i've never really got down to it whether uve anderson actually knew never found that out yeah because everything was very much a closed shop and especially when it came to the engines 
you know, even back in those early 90s, there was everybody had to have this special pass key and swipe this card. And, you know, it was only certain people. Yeah. And I know that, you know, speaking, you know, to, to, to certain mechanics that, you know, things would appear on a car overnight while they're building them in the factory. Yeah. You know, what's this? Oh, don't worry. Just you carry on and build a car. Yeah. You know, there was always stuff. And, you know, I think it's, you can't, you can't, I mean, I know obviously about that turbo thing and I'm sure every other team had their own little kind of cheat. But, you know, John Wheeler from Ford Motor Company, who was very much the Escort Cosworth man at that time, he classed Group A as the cheating era. Yeah, because you didn't have enough power if you played by the normal rules to make yeah. the spectacle interesting, did no, you, really? No, no. And, and you know, at the end of the day, yeah, Toyota got caught. And, you know, we were on the sharp end of it and we lost our world championship because of it. And did we probably need it? Probably if we'd never used it, we probably would have gone on and won the world championship anyway. Amazing. That's, that's an amazing statement to make, isn't it? Mm. So you are contracted through to ni- end of 96. Yes. So talk us through those years. And then we need to get to Colin because I, I think people will be desperate to hear about the man now. <laughs> yeah. well, but so so you, you start do, your satellite operations that are effectively quasi-works mm. s- supported. You go and do stuff with them. Yeah. And then halfway through the year in June, I had a phone call from David Richards and he said, you know, you know, can we have a chat? He said, um, you know, I've got an opportunity I'd like to line you up for, but I'd like to meet you. And I said, fine, no problem. Where would you like to meet? Because we had a very relaxed schedule. He said, oh, I'd like to meet you. He said, do you know Thornbury Castle? You know Thornbury Castle. Thornbury? Yes. Brilliant. I love the fact that it comes back to Thornbury. I'll go special, special shout out to my mate Shippy from Thornbury. You're going to love this bit. <laughs> so I drove to Thornbury Castle and we had lunch there. And in comes DR with a helicopter and we had a chat. And then he explained the situation. Because I think after that 1995 victory, Colin kind of... Ad- could he? Could you say, yeah, going off the rails a little bit? And well, you do, don't you? You know, make a load of money. Yeah. He's a celebrity as well. Yeah. And you know, I, I think don't think things were going the way that Dr. wanted. Yeah. And you know, I think he wanted to get somebody to come in there to help try and control the situation. It's interesting. Bit. So this is as much about a holistic view of Colin's life as it is the bloke sitting next to him reading the notes. Yes. So, the, so it just demonstrates that the co-driver has a much bigger influence on the performance of the driver than just the notes. Basically, yes, to help control situations. You're a therapist. Yes, it's a bit like, you know, the, the classic example is the golf bro and the caddy. Yeah, okay. And, and you know, except in this case, it's a life and death scenario. Yeah. But the caddy can say, listen, don't be so stupid here. We've got a three-shot lead. Just lay it up there. We can wedge it on and probably sink the putt and you'd still do the same thing yeah. without the hassle. That's the life so, of the So do you think... So you've you've benefited from from the fact that Derek Ring has been identified as being not the right person for that point in Colin's life, but do you feel sorry that for him as a fellow professional because he was jettisoned for something that probably wasn't his fault? Yes, in many ways. I mean, he was a good co-driver. He good co-driver in terms of going through the motions of reading the notes, doing the timing, and doing everything else. But I don't think he was strong enough an individual to say, "For fuck's sake, yeah. don't do that." Yeah. You know, that is stupid. Let's do it this way. Let's do it that way. And Colin, Colin's star had grown so quickly yeah. that he probably was beyond reproaching the car, wasn't he? Whatever he wanted to do, he would do. And some of it basically. wasn't wise. But basically, and, you know, he wasn't 
worried about standing up to the management either and basically saying what he thought, you know, and like your movie showed, you know, it was in full yeah. public view as well. Yeah. But that was Colin, you know, and I, I think as much as anything else, that's why people love him so much, as much as his flamboyant driving style, you know, longest and highest on the jumps. It was that determination to win and living, you know, life on the your, your bloody collar almost, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. he, that was him. So, so you got Thornbury Castle, DR arrives, DR. sorry, David, arrives in, in his flying gearbox. Yeah, so then he explained the situation. This is what we're thinking of doing. I'm thinking for 1997 at the moment, you know, this is obviously between us. I need to speak to the to Colin. I need to speak to everybody. And Interestingly, so he's approached you before he's mentioned it to Colin. Yeah, I Do think, think so. I think so. Yeah, okay. Because I think he wanted to get the pieces in place. Yeah. He didn't want to suggest somebody that wasn't necessarily going to come anyway. Yeah. But as it was, Yuha didn't have anything lined up at that point, although we went on to to sign up with um, Ford Motor Company, I think. Yeah. But, you know, it was an opportunity. And, of course, you know, the whole thing that, you know, milling around in my mind that Colin was very much Colin McCrash and all these nicknames out there. But there was an element of somebody who was exceptionally talented and I thought, well, there's an opportunity to maybe perhaps bring do some good. And I think by the time we'd negotiated, everything was agreed, you know, come December, off we went and did our Monte Carlo testing and, and Swedish testing. But I think by the time Colin got there, I think he kind of realised himself that the way things were going wasn't right and he had to change himself. So that helped us a little bit. But I think there was an element of respect for us both. Did he, resent, and, did he resent the fact that the change had been foisted on him rather than he'd chosen it? Because it's almost as if, did he turn up and he was told, this is your co-driver? No, I think it, there was a, a meeting and we yeah. went for meetings in ProDrive and discussed it. And, you know, I think our personalities kind of gelled and, you know, it was it was all quite fine. So, I mean, so David being the arch manager he is probably made it feel like it was Colin's choice when it probably wasn't <laughs> quite possibly think that's a fair statement yeah quite possibly quite okay possibly. Another, Okay. Let, let's also do another nitty gritty thing here so you, you're at the top of your game now Colin McRae is mm. probably the most valuable commodity in rallying at this mm. point mm. even though he's not the most winning of drivers his name's shining the brightest he's the most, he's the most exciting I have no idea what he's earning at this point. He's probably, speculate, speculatively, he's probably earning three to five million pounds a year, would I thought, at this point. No, probably less than that, because the big payday was to come later in our, okay. in our relationship. But, but so, so when you're negotiating, what percentage do you think you're earning that he's earning? Do you think, are you earning 10% of what he's earning, or are you yeah, earning 50%? Approximately, yeah. So, so that's an interesting psychological point, I think, that you, you're, you're the best in your game, but you're happy to earn that, because you know that he's the one that's... He's the name. I mean, yeah. how does that feel? How does that work? I, I, you know, there were situations where should I have asked for more? Yes, I should have. Do I need more? Probably I don't. You know, and it was never going to be that much more to make a massive, to make the massive difference that you needed. But, you know, I was there to do a good job and to do it as professional as I could make it. And I was happy with my lot. And... But I was also in my negotiations. I never, a lot of co-drivers have their contracts with the drivers. And I never wanted that. Um, I always said to my manager, no, I want to steer clear from that. I want to have a um, 
my contract with the manufacturer yeah and then agree fees with the driver but the manufacturer always pays me yeah so it takes that one element an awkward element it depressurizes it doesn't it yes it takes that awkward element out of the equation which then just allows us to get on and co-drive so all my contracts were always done that way and you know it worked well manufacturers were happy and it of course it meant that should for any reason Colin McRae not be uh, competing for whatever reason you know hey guys I, I'm still fine I can still co-drive yeah, yeah. And, you know. and we have a piece of paper yeah and yeah. I'm contracted to you give me another drive so, so so you you're you know he's called Colin McCrash mm. he's made a name for himself by doing multiple shells a year at this point what's your biggest shunt We've not talked about that. I mean, people like you just steer clear of this stuff, but you've already at this point had some chance that most people would have taken on board and never got in a car again. I had a probably my biggest shunt was with Yuha in Safari in 94, where it was a section down near Taita Hills in the south of um, Savo West, I think it was called. Safari you always Park. remember exactly the name, exactly the place. It's yeah. bloody freakish. Yeah. And that's where I did all my testing with Miguel Erickson, so I know it quite well. Yeah. But, you know, you can get... It takes you so long to get anywhere out in the bush that when you had a 2,000-kilometre route, you, you maybe would do one bit of the route down the south, but you'd finish the next bit of routes seven days later. So we'd done this recce in this part of the world, but then between the recce and the start of the rally, they'd have a heavy rainfall. You know what it's like. There's no bridges, you know. It's just you try to go from point A to B. This is the route you're on. You may have some obstacles along the way. That's when you get those incredible shots of the cars covered in mud, snorkel sticking out the top. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. Diverting off to find a smoother route because it's not passable that way. So we'd had a rainstorm. And we got to this section, and already by the time we got there on the rally, we were leading by four or five minutes or something. So we were in quite good good position. But our gravel crew that went through before us, and we were only probably four kilometres from the end of a section, and they caught this Land Rover. So they were stuck in its dust. And they didn't hold back. They just followed this guy through the dust. So we get to the rally. Here we are for flat crest, flat left, flat six crest and then something like 50 flat crest so we're coming at it now at about 115 120 mile an hour i expect and we go over this flat crest and you could see a water had come from the left and just washed a massive great v out of the road in front of us so of course to the left it was only probably two foot wide but probably the line we were on it was probably about eight feet wide probably 10 feet wide so we come over this crest, down into this dip. And you've and you seen are, it's not possible the moment you've gone over well, the crest. Well, just you are said, whoa! So he's just nailed it, because there was no point in breaking. It made the situation worse. Just nailed it. So the front seemed to sort of ride over it with a bit of a bang, but the back kind of sunk into it, and then launched the car up, up in the air. And it's the worst possible scenario. Having a roll side over side is not too bad, but when you start going end over end, then it's a big catapult job. But then it's rolling twice or something, and then it seems to kind of like pirouette, and then it goes sideways, and it's like boom, 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 and it, the velocity slows down. So we come, bang, we land on the wheels, 
I look to my right, all the glass is gone. Helicopter's gone on in front of us because he couldn't, we were fractionally behind the helicopter. He didn't see the accident. So I look at Yuha and we're there now in t-shirts and shorts and headsets. We didn't have helmets on or overalls. The headsets have gone. Yuha's got blood streaming down his face. I said, are you okay? Yes, yes, I'm okay, I'm okay. I said, okay, give me a minute, let me get out. So I opened the door and all the door hinges had snapped off and the door just fell off. And I run around the car and kind of the wheels were fairly straight. And I said, um, I said, Christ, the wheels are still on it. I said, give it a try. So he restarted the car, whoom, the thing fired up, couldn't believe it. So then he puts it in first gear, drops the clutch and this thing just like belly flops and the wheels just <laughs> fall out from it. Everything was just completely wrecked. I mean, the car was in a bad But way. you were physically okay? We, no problem at all, other than bruises, ripped the T-shirt open, cut some bruises here, and they took us in the helicopter. When they eventually saw we weren't at the finish, they came back to see us, landed, took us to hospital. Do you think that people should be allowed to do a, a rally like that in T-shirt and shorts and no helmet? Or, or if, it was, if you were in charge of the rally now, would you say you should wear equipment? Yeah, absolutely. Was that yeah. reckless? Or yeah, was... yeah, I mean... You know, we could even use T-shirts with long trousers in something like Acropolis Rally at that time. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's a lot of it's a mental thing. And, you know, and I think as long as you keep the hydration levels and you drink correctly, you can manage anything because the body is far better at keeping itself cool than you exposing yourself to all this heat and sunlight and everything else. Yeah. And you just, as long as you drink plenty, your body will stay nice 365 you know, you may be soaking wet and everything's dripping off you. But it's doing its job. But it's doing its job. And that's what it's all about. And I, th I think nowadays it would never happen again. But so we've, we've, got we've, we've just it. started the Colin McRae era with a 25-minute You Are Cancun story. I'm not very good at this, am I? <laughs> um, so, so, you've, you've, so you're now with Colin. Yeah. You're part of the, of the ProDrive operation. You've, you're, everything's in blue. Um, how, how does it start? Well, we, we go and do our Monte Carlo test. And I think we... we jumped around to find different conditions around the south of France because you're always trying to chase a bit of dry, a bit of damp and a bit of snow. So at least you can do your comparisons on tyres and get a feeling. And Is this the wide body car now that we call the 22B? Yeah. We're on the wide body car now. Exactly. Two, three, the three, two door one. Yeah. And, and, and it was the first of the WRC cars. And how many, how many, has Tommy won a championship yet or not? Uh, yes, he would have. I think yeah. he won it in 96. Yeah, okay. So, so actually... Tommy is probably the favourite at this point, isn't he? Yes, he would have yeah. been. Okay. Yeah. He would have been. And of course, we, you know, this beautiful car. And it's, it's always exciting the start of a new year. And I think for any racing driver joining a new team, you know, that moment of going out in brand new, shiny overalls with new sponsors, with this wonderful car. It's always it was exciting. The, I think it might be one of the best looking rally cars ever made. I, I would agree with you. Yeah. I would agree with you. And, and... You know, it was the only car as well that was not designed by Subaru themselves. Yeah. And they basically manufactured it. But, you know, it looked it was it looked fast, stood still. Yeah. That was the car. And um we did our first test in Monte Carlo, that went quite well, no issues at all. And then we went to Sweden, uh, straight off the back of that before Christmas, uh, found some pretty heavy snow which we rolled on. But, you know, and I thought, all oh, right. Your first okay, of many. Here we go. 
but it was it wasn't that bad because it was quite snowy so we just tipped the car back over and next to no damage didn't cause us any so problems. you're sitting next to you so you've got plenty of stage time or practice time yeah. under your belt sitting next to this this person who will go on to become and this is an absolute fact the most famous rally driver of all time he may not be the most winning but his name is the most famous i think so yeah I and so, so so what what are your thoughts about are you, are you thinking Blimey, this is exciting. He's amazing. Are you thinking, I miss some of Yuha's cool-headedness? What, what are you thinking at this point? Well, nothing. Because I think until you get in the heat of competition, yeah. do you know? Because, you know, testing is not real. You know, you're just going 2Ks up, 2Ks back. Have a cup of coffee, talk about this. New tyres, new dampers, whatever it may be. 2Ks, 2Ks. You know, everything stop, start, stop, start. Was he soaking up information the same way Yuha was? Was he just, could you tell he was much more a seat-the-pants guy? No, I think he was, he was... At that point, I could see he was quite relaxed, and I, I could tell from his driving style that everything was just smooth and calm and balanced, beautifully balanced in the car, you know, and nothing looked like it was a panic. That yeah. was the thing. Yeah. But from the outside, it's, you know, you're going for it. But that was the ability of the man. Yeah. Um, and, you know, until we actually got to Monte Carlo, when we got to the heat of competition, did we really know? Thing is, Monte Carlo is always a bad rally anyway for any driver because you know you're more or less using car and tire combinations that are completely alien to probably fifty percent of the road conditions. Yeah. But you just try, you. The key to Monte Carlo was trying to get the perfect compromise in tire to give you the fastest time at the end of the stage. Yeah. And you have to compromise in snow and ice to maybe benefit on the tarmac and vice versa. So it was always a bit of a juggling act and a lot more conversation with the gravel crews, a lot more conversation with Michelin or Pirelli or whoever it was that send their guys together. Then Colin and his dad, what do you think? And right, where is the snow? Is it on an uphill section? Yeah, it's quite steep and there's that tight hairpin left. And, you know, because there's no point in taking a tire that's fastest, but you may not get up over the call. Yeah. That's a complete waste of time. Yeah. So it was always a balancing act. And it wasn't a great rally to really have a good judge on. But as it was, we got caught out on a patch of ice. Yeah. And just slid wide, went off, hit a tree, and we retired. So And that was, that was quite early, wasn't it? It was very early. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very early second, first day or second day, early in the second day, I think it was. So that was the end of... And before Monica. Super Rally, wasn't it? So you couldn't... No. That was just, we're going yeah. home. Yeah. And then we went to Sweden. And we had a great Swedish rally. And, you know, I think we were up against our teammate, Kenneth Eriksson, who obviously was a Swedish expert. And, you know, we were, we were doing really well. And we get to one point where, you know, we had a chance to win this rally. And um, we went to one stage which had very little um, snow on it, but it was frozen solid. And we played around with a tyre combination of a tyre where we, it was the ice tyre, which is a big chunky block instead of a little tiny small blocks of snow. But what they'd done, they buffed off 50% of the tread yeah. and then had a shorter base spike put into was it. Was this based on knowledge or just speculative? That was, it, it all came from Kenneth Erickson. Did it, yeah. And he'd done the bulk of the, the test and work on this. So Kenneth Erickson kind of threw us a bit of a, a screwball, really, and... and we chose not to take that tire, but he chose to take it. So he knew exactly. And he went, he blasted everybody on this stage and went fastest. We took this other tire and we lost out dramatically. We ended up finishing third or fourth, I think, in the rally, and Kenneth won it. And that was down to this probably 
third stage from home, I expect. It's very difficult to explain this stuff to the audience, isn't it? Because the mm. audience just it just wants to sit there and watch a rally report, as you would. It yeah. wasn't on mainstream TV back then, even. But you, there's so much detail, there's so much going on that you'll never disseminate that to the audience. No, you? you wouldn't. Never, ever, ever. And you know, I think in, I think in racing, you've got the same thing, but to a lesser degree. But it means equally as much. But in rallying, you've got all these bizarre conditions that are coming at you that you have to prepare yourself for. Yeah. You know, and and you're not dealing with a constant surface. You know, the surface is ever changing damper setups ever changing to get the best compromise and you know i think it's anybody who's naturally talented that can overcome these things themselves um you know which makes them a far better driver than most and and we lost out because of that but then okay we're, we're two rallies in monte carlo was a Zero was a bad points. one yeah sweden was okay we, we we could have won but we learned our lesson but then we go to safari now, if there was one rally in the World Championship that you would say it's not good for Colin, it's Safari. Because Colin was like, flat out, let me have it, whoosh. You know, here, it's a whole different mentality. So we were doing a test before the rally. And, and we went up to a place called Karen, to Windy Corner, which is just on the edge of the Rift, Great Rift Valley. And there was a section of probably 15 kilometers across a fast but tricky in places section, then dropped down this very rocky descent. And uh, we went down to the bottom of it, turned around, came back up, made the notes the first time through. So I get to the service and I said, tell me, what are all these cares and cautions and triple cautions? I said, we've had cares before, but I mean, we've got these cautions and triple cautions everywhere. What's that then? And he said, well, that's you know, to warn me of the conditions. And I said, right. I said, well, if we're going to make this rally, and I've learned a bit of this from you, if you're going to win this rally, you're going to have to have a second set of pace notes. <laughs> right, how's that going to work then? And I said, well, we just, we've got our normal th one, two, three, four, five, six, whatever it may be, that's telling you the speed. But now you need to have a set of pace notes to describe the road conditions because you're facing here the extreme of motoring. So I said, probably what we need to do is probably have something like a descriptive system so it doesn't clash with the other one. Half shit, shit, double shit. Yeah, yeah. More or less. Yeah. But to, to, to tell him how, how fast to go, but also describing what condition it is you're facing, be it holes, ruts, rocks, ditch, whatever, wash away. Um, and then you also need to think a little bit of planning where the smoothest part of the road is. So it could be keep left over 50, over medium rough, into keep right, over fast rough, rough for 200, into caution, stop ditch, and off you go. So he said, right, okay, that all makes sense. So I said, how are we going to, how now are we going to describe them then? And I said, right, let's have a fast, medium, bad, slow, and stop. So we had five speeds, and then we described the conditions, and then he applied a gear speed to all of those. So he said, right, let's go make some more notes. So we went down and made some more notes, and then we came back. He said, yeah, that's not too bad, made some slight changes. And then off we did, we did all that testing, and he said, yeah, I feel real comfortable with that. So off we went on the recce, and we made our notes. And, um, you know, at the end of the rally, we won our first safari rally. 
you know, and he, he drove a brilliant rally. We had an alternator scare, which was, that was a story and a half, but I'm not, we could waste another 15 minutes of oh, your well, recording. We, we want to hear the alternator scare. <laughs> but what, what you did was, the notes, to interpret that as a journalist, you've, you've sat him down, you've created a system, but what you've done is you've made him think Mm. about controlling his speed on the rally, haven't you? It the does. words are a diversion. Yes. You've, you've said to him, your normal approach will not work here. Yeah. And the, 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 the reasoning behind it is you go as fast as you possibly can, but slow enough that you don't cause any damage. And he had never done that before, He'd had he? never done that before, other than using what he felt was right and what he could see. Yeah. But this was spelling it out for him. But then... Did you then? Was, did he accept that approach going forward into other rallies? Yes, that's interesting. So, you... and, and we took we took that system and we used it in other events. So, all of a sudden, the events that weren't necessarily strong for Colin became his strongest. Yeah, like we won Safari three times. We won in in ninety nine, which Malcolm Wilson regards as Colin's best ever victory. Yeah, where we weren't fastest on one and section, the, and the car was brand new it and was totally undeveloped, wasn't it? Absolutely, and we won that that rally. Weren't fastest on one section, but won by 15 minutes, I think. But everybody else just had a problem, dragged it through to the end, got it repaired. And suddenly, Colin had become this sort of strategic yeah. guy able to just settle back like a fin and watch yeah. it go off around him. Exactly. You know, so um, uh, where do we go? Acropolis Rally, five times we won, won that. I won it four times with him. He won it once before. But then um, uh, where else do we go? My God. Just off the coast of Syria, uh, holiday destination. My God, I've lost it completely. Lebanon? No, not Lebanon. Island. Oh, uh, Cyprus. Cyprus. Yeah. So we won Cyprus twice, I think, which yeah. was a tough event. Argentina we won. That's not an easy event. But all these rough rallies became his best ones. Yeah, interesting. But then he really settled into a really nice place then. And I think that coming from that... It just gelled us together yeah. perfectly, and I think our relationship going forward from there was 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 really good. What's really interesting is, and I'm not a great one for stats or memorising um, numbers, but when we put this film out for the benefit of listening to this, we did a film on Top Gear. You might have seen, which was a celebration of the 1995 World Championship, which obviously was then Colin and Derek Ringer. Um, but after that, a lot of people said, well, do you know what? He was a name because of the computer game. He was known for going fast, but he didn't actually win that much. You won a lot of rallies. You He's did. still third or fourth most mm. winning, aren't you? Well, so you got, obviously, you've got Ogier, the modern era, what have you. But below that, you guys won a lot a lot more rallies. In fact, you're probably the most winning crew that never turned it into a championship, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, that's right, exactly. We've, yeah, we've lost world championships by one point. Yeah. You know, that stuff like that, so... Yeah, and, and sometimes that, like this first year particularly, you know, that was the first victory in five victories we had in 97 because we went on to win Rally GP. How many did Tommy win that year? Um, do you know what? I don't know. But he, but he can't have won many more. No, no. How many rounds no, were he there? Probably, he probably didn't. Yeah. But normally if anybody in a championship year wins five or six rallies, they're world champion. That's it, yeah. But we didn't because we had... Um, the Japanese always had an input into the Subaru, for instance. You know, and the Subaru engine, Boxster engine, big wide engine, very low slung. You've got this massive great cam belt at the front. Yeah. So the whole design of the world car, which was lovely. Um, have you driven a world car? 
I have, yes. Yeah. You know, it's different to the old Group A car that you drove. Yeah. It's a lot lighter flywheel, wonderfully responsive off yeah. the throttle. It yeah. feels like a race engine, whereas, the, whereas the, the Group A car feels like a nice road engine. Yes, it does. And, you know, but the problem when you've got everything so light, when you come off the throttle, when you hit the throttle, yeah, wham, it feels responsive. Come off the throttle, it's going to slow that much better, too. Yeah. So, of course, you've got this massive great cam belt in the front of the engine. Well, when you're going on and off throttle... You know, this belt is Huge stretching road. and, yeah. you know, and you've got to have these very special cam belt tensioners, which now all of a sudden have to take a massive amount of slack up very quickly, but then have to release incredibly quickly when you get back on the throttle again. Well, they were playing around and I think a lot of that development was done by Japan and they didn't quite, it took a long time for them to get it right. So while we got away with it on a lot of rallies, we retired a lot with blown engines because of this. Yeah. And, and I think it was, we had a, a, quite a few retirements of no scores. If we just had a few more thirds and fourth places championships. All too often it's how many points you score on your worst day, isn't it, that yeah. determines your championship. Making the best of a bad job. And the, the, the irony is, of course, that Colin's legacy, well, people will assume that he's, his zero point scores were because he'd had some barrel roll and destroyed it. But yeah. that year there were... Yeah, there was a lot of technical stuff. And also Tommy was, Tommy Mackinnon became the preeminent force in the championship, didn't he? He, he was did. unstoppable. He was. He was. And, I mean, he had a lot of raw speed. And, you know, the, I think the only person that could probably meet him head-to-head -head at those earlier time would have been probably Colin. Yeah. But technically, um, you know, certain elements which held us back with Subaru a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, we, we, and we've, we ended up finishing second in the championship, I think, again. And, you know, it wasn't a world championship. But... You know, world championships, while it meant a lot to Colin, I think winning and being the fastest was also of interest to Colin. Where, you know, world championships, what does it really mean at the end of the day? Colin was a one-time world champion. There's others with three, four, five, six, seven, eight world championships. But it doesn't make them any better than Colin McRae, does, does it? it? Does it mean they're considered to be any greater? No. You could argue that Colin's legacy is greater than theirs because his name is completely synonymous with the most exciting era of the sport, isn't it? I think it? so. I think yeah. so. I think you're right. So the Subaru era doesn't bring this championship, and I think people thought it was going to with yeah. you and him. And then you moved to Ford. Yep. Um, and Ford have... I mean, I, that's the beginning of my working life, and I'm there when they launched the Focus. Ford has spent billions on this thing, mm -hmm. and they need... To go and compete with it because as you did in those days and i remember how exciting it was i remember being flown out by ford to watch you guys on the monte carlo and we were all put up in the in the carlton in saint tropez mm. i mean the money they must have spent we all got helicopter rides to go and watch you guys on the stage mm. it was quite clear the car was about 40 horsepower down on everyone else's car with that incredible sort of gear linkage that came out of the dashboard that always <laughs> yeah. looked like Colin was trying to rip it out of the dashboard yeah. I mean, there was, yeah, I, I think the whole Ford thing came about as much as anything else of Colin being with Subaru since 89. I mean, I think there's very few car companies can honestly say, and you probably didn't mention this, but I think Colin McRae had such a massive impact on Subaru as a car company, yeah. which I don't think any driver has ever been able to do. So, I mean, the whole popularity of the car just rocketed. But I think he got to a point in his career, not having won the World Championship in 97 because of this, that and the other. 98 wasn't a good year. We had numerous little problems and maybe a few offs here and there. 
but he just felt that unless he makes the move now, he'll never have an opportunity to go elsewhere. Yeah. And I think that's where the whole Ford thing came about, really. It's like there's an opportunity. But he was the most obvious person. Mm. If, you, if you're Ford, you know, you, you, you obviously you want to win a World Rally Championship with your new car, but you're also marketing. You know, it's a marketing activity. You're there to get as many eyeballs as possible on this new car. Yeah. And frankly, Colin McRae not winning is probably going to get you more eyeballs on your car than a, a, a less-known driver winning. Yeah. That, that's, that's, is that a fair statement? Yeah, that, that, you're, you're exactly right. And much later in the career, we'll talk about Skoda because they were blown away about it. And we hadn't even done a rally for them other than the build-up to the rally. But yeah. that's another story. But yeah, he made a big impact for them. But it was a very risque move. It was aided somewhat by the biggest wage packet that any team had ever paid a rally driver before. Yeah. You know, so obviously that was... Do we know what it was? It was just over five million at that time. For a rally driver in 99? Yeah, that was a lot of money back then. And no one was anywhere near that, were they? No, nowhere near it. And, you know, everybody was like, wow, jeez, this is something. You know, so obviously that... I love the fact that you diverted what you were being paid by talking about what he was being paid. You know, there's no, no bloody flies on well, you, is there? Nicky? As long as you edit out that, what I said <laughs> earlier, it'd be fine. But I was happy with my lot, put good, it that way. Good. Did, you, did, you, did your shoulders relax and think, I'm now at the place I always wanted to get to? Yes, yeah. I think so at that time. Maybe. But again, you were on this crest of the wave, you yeah. know. It was, you were always moving from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And there was... There was never any time to dwell unless you just go and do some after dinner speaking or whatever. Yeah. You know, and you relay these stories and you start thinking about it a little bit and questions being asked. You you didn't think about it. But, you know, it was a risque move because normally any driver like that that's going to make a decision, you know, it would be based on how good the car is in the first place. So let's do some testing. Let's do a comparison. Let's see how quick it is. Let's do this. Let's do that. You'd maybe go back to a previous test road that you'd used with another team. Yeah. And then you'd go from the same start point to the finish point, And then you could compare and have a look. And, you know, so there was some logic there. But this was just... The car hadn't even been built yeah. at this point. You know, and it was just like a drawing. And it was down in testing ground south of Milton Keynes. Millbrook. Millbrook. They had an office in Millbrook. And you know who's in charge of the project, don't you? No. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. A Formula One team manager that swears and blasphemes a lot. Really? Gunter Steiner. Gunter Steiner was the... Gunter Steiner headed up the whole thing. 
So, lovely you know, he, he gelled the whole thing together and they came... Was up. his use of the vernacular quite frequent then as well? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's probably a little bit different now to what I remember him back then. But, um, you know, we, we, we got to that point and we were there. They asked us to go down and have a look at it. We had the big launch down in Ford in, I forget where we were, somewhere in Essex, to do all the press releases and photographs and it was all wham-bam. But the car still hadn't run. So all it was was just drawing board a shell and pulling it all together. So they actually asked us to go to Millbrook a week later and just said, listen, we're starting up the car for the first time. We're, we'd like you to come and have a look at it because where we are currently. Is that, I know it's, a, it's unconventional and it's disorganised and a bit chaotic, but is it also an opportunity for you two to get involved in developing the bloody thing and have it as you want it? Is that In many ways. I mean, obviously, without having driven it, you know, the basic concepts you're fixed with in the technical regulations that the FIA give you, but they'd already come up with the drawings for this, that and the other. And it was quite evident that this thing was going to be as strong as an ox. You could see that from the way it was built. But, you know, we went to do our... When we got it running, we had to go down to a place called Chateau Lusteau in the south of France, yeah. which where all the Paris-Dakar teams go. And this place is really as rough as a badger's arse. It's awful, you know. And, I mean, they just said, right, there's your car. Go and break it. So now you've been given a brand new rally car. Not something you say to Colin McRae, is it? <laughs> no. But, you know, the conditions were bad. We're talking... It's like giving Gazra a bottle of vodka, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, this was a test. And in one way, it's a positive because we actually very soon realised, Christ, this car is so strong. Mm. You know, other than damaging wheels and tyres and stuff, you know, the car just kept going. There was no major technical breakdown there was no suspension damage there was no ball joints ripping off the thing you know this car just took it all and we're talking you know big concrete steps or rock steps and boulders everywhere and you know the car looked pretty shabby by the time we finished but it kept going so that was a positive at least we knew it wasn't going to let us down mid-corner then we went to do our monte carlo testing so we went to one place where it was on damp tarmac and, you know, the car wasn't right. There was no grip. It was it was handling really badly. The steering was awful, you know, and just said, listen, you know, this car, I haven't got any feeling with the thing. It's too hard. And they'd done all the geometry and they'd done their calculations for spring settings and stuff. And then we started talking about springs and they said, listen, these springs are way too hard, you know. So they said, well, it is what it is. So we... They said, well, let's go and find a bit of dry tarmac. So then they had to ring round France to try and find a road that they could rent which had dry tarmac. And the only place we could go to was just north of Saint-Tropez. So we came from the mountains now down to the seaside and we were in this country road and it was perfectly dry. Which is, ex which is near Saint-Maxime, which is basically Francois Delacour's hometown around there, wasn't it? More or less. And there, yeah. we, there we were thrashing this thing. But it was still like... No, guys, you've got this wrong. This is way too hard. So then we had to go home for Christmas, uh, home for a week. Um, and then we had to go back out before Christmas where they managed to get some springs, some softer springs. So we started to drive it in the same place in Saint-Tropez. And then it's, you could feel it was going in the right direction, but still, the next minute we had a fire. Then the power steering failed, and then we had an engine fire. Then it damaged some of the wiring loop. 
So then they said, shit, okay, we, we need some more springs. We've got to go softer again. What dampers we got, right? We need to work on dampers. Who's doing the dampers then? Riger or someone? Who's doing them? Um, I don't know who it would have been. It probably would have been Riger at that stage. The springs were Eibach, but they were only making them from what they were told to make. Yeah. And um, so they said, right, well, we have to sort this power steering. So then we went home for Christmas. And then I think it was the, I think Boxing Day, we flew back. By which time somebody had been paid a fortune to make some more springs. The team had put a new wiring loom in it and fixed the power steering and off we went again. So then we had a bigger selection of springs, much softer. All of a sudden the car started to work. But, you know, we had some slight technical issues, bits and pieces. So by the time we actually came to the new year, we did a little bit more testing very early in the new year, went straight into recce. So we did the recce and the turned up with new rally cars with all the springs as we'd set it so then we went into this first stage which was 50 kilometers started near gap on a really icy snowy piece of road but then it was only for the first 10 kilometers up to this call then it was virtually dry and damp tarmac for the rest so we we're on slicks so within the first 500 meters there was didier oriel had gone off carlos was off on one corner there was somebody else off so we're just toodling around on ice and stuff, getting around that corner yeah, and really switch off the anti-lag. And it was a question of just keep it on the road. So we started to climb up this hill after about five, six k's. And all of a sudden, what the hell's that smell? You know, Christ, it smelled horrendous. Then we went a little bit further and then Christ, start, got to the point now we're choking now. And there's smoke billowing out the back of this car. What the hell is this? So we just had to stop. We had to get out of the car and because we couldn't, we couldn't drive anymore, open the doors, look in the back. And because we'd done so little test mileage, and especially hard, serious test mileage, all the heat buildup in the exhaust, and because they didn't have any heat protection on the body, it was burning oh. the paint on the floor pan in the back. So now we had to put a fire out in the back of the car. So we opened the boot and put this fire out. <laughs> of course, by the time, then we had to chuck it all in and oh, get this dust and smoke out of the car. And off we go again. So then we literally a couple of K over the top of the, the top of this mountain. And then we finished, got to the end of the stage. Of course, we'd lost, I don't know, two and a half minutes or something like that. And this was our first rally with Ford now. So it's all... The Ford PR department were very coy about what actually happened. I remember being there with my notepad out as a couple of boards are going, why was there a delay? Well, there was a small technical issue. They wouldn't tell us. No. They didn't tell us that the thing had done so few miles, the paint caught fire in the back of the car. But, you know, that's what it was like at that time. You know, we, we, that, that, that's reality, that we didn't have time to, to put all this time and effort into it. And but, but you were, it was a tank, but it was heavy. Yep. And it, and it was, how far were you down on power? I don't know, quite a, quite a way. I think, I think, you know, Mountain were doing the engines at that time. But again, it was, it was all happening so late, really. You know, in theory, things should have happened at least 12 months earlier than Colin signing. The end of 97, they should have been testing this car and running it. But as it was, we were running it and testing it seriously, straight out of the box. But what was the sequence of events? So Monte Carlo was the opener. What was the second rally that year? Well, which we finished in the end and finished third and exactly. got excluded. So so why were you excluded? It had an illegal water pump on it. it how how no ironic, you're 40 horsepower down, you get dumped for something attached to your engine. Yeah, it was a water pump or something. It, it was electrically driven or something. Oh no, 
it was driven off the off some off a belt, but it was not the standard pump. Okay. So we exclude. Then we went to Sweden, and then something happened in Sweden. We did next to nothing, and we came home early. And then we went to Africa. So everybody's now thinking, Jesus, this is going to be a nightmare. So they've had the nightmare of being excluded. They had... A DNF. Yeah, a DNF, and, a, and it was quite early on. And you go to the most appallingly difficult yeah, valley. and we're thinking, Jesus, what chance... Okay, we knew it was strong, but whether it was reliable. And everything clicked, and we just controlled it perfectly. Yeah. We didn't have any technical issues. We stayed out of trouble, and we won it. And Ford weren't prepared. And the Ford PR machine went into overdrive from our side of the fence. Yeah. It was like, well, this is the way you do it. You don't develop the car 12 years, tw- sorry, 12 months earlier. You just give it a wing. And before you know it, I mean, you would have been leading the championship, wouldn't yeah. you? Or were you? No, we, were, we would have been behind because we'd lost yeah, the two rallies. So. But, but even so, for the, for the chaos behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, but for everybody, this was like, wow. You know, why is the wind safari first out? You know, a Japanese manufacturer would literally pay a fortune to have the honour of winning safari. So off we went and we had a wonderful party, you can imagine. And then we went to Portugal. So now we're back into our first real event. I'm going to stop you there. We can't go into it too much. But the parties clearly were of a different magnitude to the UHA parties. Yes. Yes, okay. Had, had you partied that hard? Did, had your Evervale upbringing taught you or given you any warning as to how this would work? Well, the Kankanen parties were mainly between Finns. Yeah. And when the Finns go out and party, you just let them carry on and you just disappear <laughs> because they're on a different stratosphere. <laughs> But with the Colin party, it was good fun. Yeah. We, we had great fun and, and the whole team joined in and our team, we always we always brought our mechanics with us. Yeah. So it was for us all to enjoy our successes. And, you know, there was, there was you know, we'd probably pay for for the parties for the guys just as a thank you. And, and everybody loved that. It was a, a great team morale. There's, there's a strange attitude towards the, the, the party animal racing driver on the one hand there seems to be this sort of sneering disapproval that an athlete shouldn't behave like that but mm. from my side i'd be mortified if my heroes didn't go and properly go mental once they'd won an event i mean or, i wouldn't say do. yeah i wouldn't say it's necessarily no mental. but as you get you know have a great time yes having a great time and, and i think again the modern era the amount of money it costs and everything else everybody thinks that no you shouldn't be acting like that but for us we trained hard we worked hard Physically, we were in great shape. We weren't overweight. We controlled our partying with good exercise. Yeah. And we were good enough to do exactly what was expected. Yeah. So it was fine. And, you know, with Colin, yes, he loved a bit of fun. And, and, you know, I think there was a... For people that don't know him, you wouldn't necessarily see that element of Colin. Because actually, deep down, he was a very shy individual. He was never one that would, if he didn't know who you were, you'd think, God, what an ignorant git he was. But if he knew you, it's a different kettle of fish. He was the most difficult person I ever interviewed. Yeah. It was impossible. Yeah. You know, and he wasn't ever easy in that scenario of being thrust in front of the limelight and the cameras and stuff. And a lot of the time, and I and I think I probably owe my profile, a lot of my profile due to Colin's shyness because... Colin said, oh, you go and have it with them. 
so I was always the representative for us. And, yeah. You know, that helped. That, and also would have helped him enormously because he had a crutch to lean on, didn't he? He yeah. could basically think, Nicky's got this. Yeah. I don't want to talk to these wankers. You just go and do yeah, it. Yeah, you can sort it. And, yeah. You know, and it was fine. And you you do your political bit, but they got their, their quotes. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, when it came to the parties, it was always around sort of close group and, you know, just you guys. And, you know, he was a bit like um, a social time bomb, really. You know, you, you never knew when it was happening or where it would happen. But it, yeah. But when it did, it was like brilliant crack. Yeah. You wanted you know, to, to be me. there. Yeah. You wanted to be one of the inner sanctum that was invited to it, yeah. basically. And, I, and But, you know, but it was always off the back of some success. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just a case of wanting to do it all the time because that's what's important. It was always the back of some success. So on the back of your success in Safari, you arrive in Portugal with a hangover. Yeah, and it was the first real event of the season where you haven't got the ice and snow of Portugal. You haven't got the snow tyre ice and tricky conditions in Sweden. You haven't got the roughness of Safari. This is the first sprint event of the season. This is where we know where we're at. Bugger me, we win the rally. <laughs> Jesus, back to back. How the hell do we do that? You know, and like everybody was going, Christ, World Championship on. We, 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 we're going to do it here. But do you know what? After that, everything just fell apart. And it became the most frustrating season I think I've ever had. Other than finishing fifth on Corsica, we retired on everything else. So Mechanical or shunts? Mechanical, I think. Maybe a, a shunt or two, maybe. But mainly mechanical, stupid things. But, I remember seeing an onboard of the gear lever, just the, the link is like broken yeah. and him punching it. Yeah, yeah. You know, he'd let his, his anger go. Just, yeah. You know, you've got to release, if you've got a bottle of Coke, if you want to drink it, you've got to let it go, haven't you? Psh, okay. <laughs> Let's get on with it. And that was Colin, you know, let that that anger go. And, and But, you know, the worst part about the World Championship at that time, you mentioned it earlier, there was no Super Rally. Yeah. So whereas now, if you retire, as long as you've not smashed the cage into smithereens, you know, you have an opportunity to start the next day. Then we didn't have that. So you could retire on the first stage of the first day, you know, and that would be it, boys, off you go. But you've gone through all the testing, all the recce, all the pre-event build-up, and that was it. You're on your way home. So, you know, literally we had something like 10, you know, we had four finishes and we had ten retirements, so that was that was, and that was. We're talking a long time, really. And and, and again, most people would attribute that that um, that ratio, that statistic, as being a him crashing, and it wasn't, was it? No, it wasn't at all. It wasn't at all. You know, you know, Colin was exceptionally talented driver. He could see a lot of things that probably don't register with another driver. You know. Once he turned around to me, he said, listen, he said, I've been thinking about the pace notes, he said. Unless it's over a crest, he said, I don't really need to know the direction of the corner. Because he said, I can see the way the corner's going. So I said, right. <laughs> As a co-driver, that's... I said, yeah, that. I said, that makes sense. I said, yes, and it's one thing less to say. But I said, it works for you, but it doesn't work for me. Yeah. You know, because especially when we went into 2001, where everything became a lot lower built and you were sat on the floor and you couldn't see forward. Was that a Christian Lorio car? Yeah, was that one of those? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we couldn't see forward at all. 
you know, and I had to pick my head up to look out the side door. So Must have been disconcerting for you. No, it was easy because was it? reading pace notes that way is the best way to do it. So you're feeling it through the seat of your pants okay. of concentrating on what's on the page and, you know, knowing that's the six or that's the four and the level of G-force and, you know, the direction and what's on the page. It, so I presume you didn't allow him to make that move to not have No, I said, move. listen, I said, it may work for you, but it doesn't work for me. <laughs> Can you imagine? You're sat next to Colin McRae and he announces he no longer wants to know where the corner goes. Yeah, unless just, it's all, over he wants, a crest. all he wants is three, four, five, six, whatever it may be, you know, because he can see the direction. But I think that was him, you know. It's, it's, how can I put this? Everybody would have probably ridden a mountain bike. Yeah. If you ride a mountain bike and you're concentrating on what's immediately in front of your front wheel, You'll have an accident on something coming up, which is far more important, yeah. because you haven't seen it. With Colin, you read in the notes, and generally the notes would come just when he needs it. That's the way it, it, it sort of worked. So it's literally just about one in front, if that. But he's already got that, and he's subconsciously got this corner, but he's already looking where the next one is. So he's sussed the lie of the land. He knows what he's got to deal with. So while we had quite a few accidents, I would say there was probably a hundred times more that got away from sheer ability yeah. of just being able to use the width of the road, use that bank and boof and bounce your back and get it on the road again. And, you know, that was the measure of him. I mean, he had wonderful vision and sight. Did you, um, did you know at the time that you were lucky to be sitting next to him? Or were you just doing your job? Um, I think once we went from, I think I only realised it and when I got to Rally GB the first time in 97, because there was so much hype between the whole Richard Burns, Colin McRae thing, that we had to have our separate press meetings, which was normally done in a hotel in London. So all the, the, the national press, the Sun, the Mirror, all their motoring journalists would want to come and have their own dedicated slot with him. So we would have a day or two days up in London where all these journalists would come together and interview us. And only then when you see the, the hype and the buzz and when you turn up to events and the amount of people, you know, we used to get a lot of people no matter where we went. Yeah. And you could be in a different continent and there'd be a, a Scottish and Welsh flag being waved on a pole. Did you realise how much you know, how much people loved him and the way that he drove. But GB was extra special. Because and you were drawing huge, millions of people, mm, huge crowds. It was, it was. And, and it made the rally, really, yeah. in terms of ticket sales and what have you. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it was massive. But I think if you did a straw poll to people of our age, broadly speaking, you know, people between the age of 35 and 60, and said, who would you pay the most to sit next to in a car to have a passenger ride? be they alive or sadly not with us, I think Colin would win it. Mm. I think he would. I think so. And you've done as many miles next to him probably as anyone. Yeah. That, that must, and sometimes you must go, wow. Yeah. Cause you, and you also you witnessed, I love sitting next to people that can really pedal. I love sitting, I've sat next to Colin, I was lucky to do jobs, and Loeb and the others and Ogier. But to watch someone that's got proper car control drive unless you've done it, it's, it's difficult to describe it, actually. Even as someone who deals with words, there's something ethereal going on that's difficult to describe. I mean, there's, there's things happened. I mean, it wasn't just... 
in a rally car testing and rallying. There's also the recce going on here yeah. as well. And recce's became, have now become a lot more compressed, two days maybe. But then we maybe have five, six days of recce. So there would always be time enough and you'd have a, like a Group N in Pretzer or, you know, with Ford we had Escort Cosworth. So there was always a bit of fun we'd have there. And once we were in Argentina, they gave us some, Pirelli had some old forest tyres they wanted us to use up for the recce. So we got these things and they were like bubblegum really, you know. But he found out, you know, we came out this one stage called El Condor, which is over the highest point of the route. And we dropped down this stage and we came out from there and we're going back to the hotel at night. And the guy in our chase spare car used to follow us. So he found out that these things were beautifully soft on the road. So, you know, then he'd end up doing complete donuts, but on the spot donuts in a Group N car. So now you imagine doing a donut on the car and you're literally spinning on its axis. You know, you're not doing a big wide donut. You're just going, it's a bit like, it's a bit, and I give you an experience. It's a bit like these astronauts having to go into these G-force things spinning around like that. And Jesus, it was wild because you were literally just going. Until the tires went pop. Well, the smoke was just flipping incredible. I mean, it, it took it took about forty seconds for the smoke to stop. So the mechanic was driving down the road section behind us. Oh, what the hell's all this bloody tire marks here? Because of course, there's this perfect circle <laughs> there, and then it would be again and again and again. And Johnny, Johnny Bold, it was. He said, "Boys, what's all these circular tire marks?" McRae said, "I think I need some new tires on this car." <laughs> so. And it was just him hooning around. So when you talk about Ken Block, yeah, yeah, who's had a tremendous career in hooning around, that's Hoonigan, and he wasn't necessarily a very fast rally driver. Colin was fast rally driver, won a lot of world championship rallies, but probably was the best Hoonigan ever. Well, I think I think I think Ken's admitted that Colin was his inspiration, wasn't mm. he? Really, and and. I, we can come back to the X Games thing in a minute because, because yeah. obviously people didn't believe he existed. His entrance onto the onto the X Games scene was, let's say, yeah. legendary. But yeah. um, so you so you're you're the end of '99 doesn't work. It's a it's, no. it's a disaster. You go into 2000, and by this stage, Persia have got an absolute weapon, haven't they? Basically, they've got yeah the 206. The 206 has come out, and it's super clever. Yeah. It's an amazing differentials. It's it's a, it's the best package, isn't it? Yeah, and. You know, it started off fast, yeah. but it's getting faster and faster and faster. Is Burns there in 2000 or was he... No, I think... 2001, wasn't it, Burns? Yeah, uh, no, 2000 and... No, he was later. No, what's it later? Because 2001 was still Subaru, wasn't it? Yes, he was. Yeah, sorry, I'm getting that wrong. So, But Marcus Gronholm is now... Yeah. Yeah. And Didier Oriol was in the team as well. Yeah. So, you know, but this car was getting faster and faster. And while the we our 2000 car was better than the 2001 car, there was a lot of technical stuff that coming into the Peugeot that kind of made the focus a little old hat like you mentioned the gear stick earlier it was a cable operated sequential gearbox yeah but you know that was all a bit temperamental and sometimes you miss a gear and bang and you'd have to go in so you know there was a lot of Peugeot had that ring on the steering wheel then yeah, didn't it yeah and you know the, and it was all hydraulically controlled and you know it was brilliant stuff really so you know, we were still playing catch-up and there was still engine development going on. Mountain were working as hard as they can, working within what we had. 
but it's always seemed to be a case of catching up. But I, I got the feeling as a as someone who was re- reporting on this, I wasn't a rally reporter, but you got the sense that Ford felt that it had it was getting its money's worth because McRae mm. and you were in the car, you were making headlines without winning rallies. Yeah. Why spend the extra, why spend a load more money? It's quite clear Peugeot was spending a lot more money on the actual performance of the vehicle than Ford was. Yeah. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think that's probably right. But the Ford budget was still big, mind you, and we were still going through the motions of doing all this test and development and trying this and trying that. So they were still going ahead. But I think from Malcolm's point of view, it was getting Christian Lorio involved, who had already had a tremendous career in developing rally cars, um, you know, and, and I think he was brought into the fray then. And then that's when the whole interior of the car changed. Aerodynamically, things changed. You know, we were sat on the floor now. And, you know, I remember starting a Monte Carlo rally and I thought, Jesus, this car's so low, you know. And literally, if I held my four fingers out straight, that was the diff- that was the height from the sill to the ground. And, you know, you'd be taking cuts in corners and you'd feel the floor pan and my seat rocking because the, the you're basically, it's so low, you're sling-hooking yeah. this rally car off the you? ditches lot, and you know, stuff. As a co-driver, one of the worst accidents is if the mountain point of your belt gets yeah. caught. So were you worried about that at the time or not? No, not really. I think, you know, I did ask the, our, you know, our, our team chief mechanic. He said, no, that'll never happen. He said, the mounting point is different. But I always remember, you know, uh, in Turkey it was in 2006 or 2005, Marcus Granholm cut a corner and they were repairing this bridge. So there was this tape. And by the time the rally came, all the boys had been cutting across off the edge of this parapet to get off this bridge. Well, in there, they'd got little sort of metal pins to support the concrete and stuff. And I always remember Timo Routiain and reading the notes to Marcus Grenholm came around this corner and he went, all of a sudden the co-driver just started screaming to him. Ah, ah. And Marcus Grenholm's looking at him, Mita, Mita, like what, what? He's, and he's just screaming and he's continually screaming. And he said, tell me what is wrong? And he said, Moi persister, Mita Sinoit, what did you say? My persister, which is my ass, and you know, eventually they went over the flying finish and told him the story. So you are gets the end, absolute classic. Goes to doing the interview. What happened in there? We believe you've lost a lot of time. Don't know. Yes, Timo wrote, Timo had a problem in there. A metal rod, straight up his asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a straight up his asshole. Is it re- and he really. It- Went straight through the floor, through the seat, and it punctured his buttock. A metal rod from this thing. Just imagine. Because you wouldn't be able to move other within the confines of what the belt would let you move. But it never happened to me, thank God. But that, that, you know, that's... But as these cars got lower and lower, you must, I mean, you must have one eye on it thinking, bloody hell. I mean, inevitably, when you went to gravel events, though, you had to go higher because, you know, you needed the suspension, travel and everything else. But, you know, things did improve. And although we were always behind a little bit in power and it was always a bit of a struggle, but there would be events where we would always end up winning through one thing and another, even though other drivers may have their problems. 
Argentina. Um, it was Acropolis was a prime example. Carla, they brought Carlos Sainz in as well into the team. Yeah. So now they had two real powerhouses. And, you know, it was, it was always... It was a very frustrating partnership for Carlos because Colin would always be the last to jump in the bus going to Park Fermi in the morning. You know, you had literally had to drag him out of bed to get him in the car. And Carlos is going, where is he? Where is he? I said, I've called him, Carlos. He's on his way. He's told me he's But on they, his way. they did get on, didn't they? They did. But Carlos being Carlos, it was like, where is he? Where is he? And I said, well, he's coming now. I said, well, you tell him. I said, I've already rung him to tell him to get you. You tell him when he gets in the car. But, you know, whenever they had head-to-head battles, if Carlos was going head-to-head with Colin, he'd never, ever win. Colin would always win the head-to-head. And I think that was the... That was... Colin was probably at his best when he was, this is it, do or die. Nobody could compete with him because he always managed to find four seconds, five seconds, six seconds, whatever it may be, because he just, it wasn't a case of take the brain out, but his level of danger, his threshold for danger was probably a lot lower than... And he had the skill level to take it to that point To that point, and, you know, it was a bit higher than the next guy, and, you know, come over a crest, and you have to jump right into the corner between two boulders, and he'd take it flat, and, you know, woof in there, and whoosh, he'd take it. So on that note... Was because I got I I'm not as brilliant with the t- t- timings as you. I want to talk through the, his 2001 performance on Rally GB because I still think that was extraordinary before the massive shunt. But were you in were you in the car for the massive shunt in Corsica? Yes. What we year was two. that? What was it, the one where he did his cheekbone? Uh, that was 2000. Was it? That was so that was a massive shunt. Did that affect you at all? No, not really. I mean, again, at the time. It became as a bit of a surprise to Colin as well, because we had a, we did the first day and we'd been to Corte and we started the stage and off we went and we came to long, or long six left and six left, 52 left and two right, which was around a rock face, square left, narrows over a bit of a kind of a bridgey thing and two right. So we came around it and all of a sudden he went, no. Tried to turn in, there was the two, bang, it was right there. And he was flat chat, no chance of slowing. And he tried to turn in early to give himself some space, clipped the bank on the inside, and it flipped us up onto its side. And we went through literally this hole in a wall, and then into some trees. And we ended up, bang, upside down, down in this ravine, and the road is probably about 20, 30 And there are echoes of Toivonen here, it's not a... It's, it's not. It's a similar accident, actually, isn't it? You've quite been, similar. Yeah. On, not and and in and not that far away from Toyvonen's accident yeah. as it happened. So now we're we're upside down in this car. I said, "Christ, Carl, are you all right? Carl, are you all right?" And his arms are just hanging there, and it was like shit. So, put my hand on the roof, undid the belts, and I'm looking, and there's a bit of blood dripping. Oh shit! So. I tried to feel his torso and you know when you're when you're upside down in a car nothing is where it's supposed to be you're yeah. disorientated mm. but there was something wrong and I couldn't put my finger on it there was something not right here but anyway so I checked his body right his body he's not bleeding from his body at least so 
maybe we've got a chance. So now I'm trying to get out of the car. Now I can't get out of the car against the bank. So I kick open the door as best I can. And then next minute he starts screaming. He comes around, Cole, are you all right? And screaming, get me out, get me out. I said, okay, let me have a look a minute. Let me have a look. Can you move? No, he said, I can't move. But he's screaming and screaming. And I, I go round the outside, round the back of the car. There's petrol dripping out the back. Oh, shit. Get to his side, grab the door. And again, the door is pretty bad and falls off. But then I could see what had happened. When we clipped this bank on the inside, we've basically gone through this hole in the wall, sort of on his side, and hit a tree which has gone up the bonnet and just smashed into the roll cage the, of the pillar. The A-pillar has been smashed a bit. So the A-pillar now and the roof has all been pulled down over his face and over his chest. Oh, Jesus. So, and, but he's trapped in the car because he can't move because his helmet's on. It's against the seat and he's got the roof right here in front I mean, of his face. But there, but for the grace of God. I mean, if it had been another bit of impact it would have just taken his head off well it would have been or, or certainly mashed him fairish yeah so I'm thinking Christ what can I do I thought Christ i got to relieve the pressure let me see if I can get him out how can I do this so I got a, the jack and I tried to use our jack in the car but I had nothing to jack it against and the, the jack just kept slipping and there was nobody around us and I just said to him and there's one car two cars passed and I said Col, I'm going to have to get some help I said, I can't do this by myself. Please just stay, stay there. I'm coming back. So I knew that five, 600 meters down the road, there was a radio point. So I just set off legging it down there. So in my best French, I said to the guy, stop the stage, ambulance, emergency, 600 meters. And uh, I said, there was two spectators there. I said, you guys come with me. So we get these guys to come up with us and, and we, they, trying to do as best we can but there's nothing we can do we're trying to basically move twisted metal that's folded around him and there's nothing we can do we need physical like proper pneumatic yeah rams to push it all apart so we just have to wait there okay call they're coming and this petrol's still dripping from this car thinking bloody hell but the roof is upside down but then i thought christ i haven't pressed the emergency button but that was of no use yeah. anyway, because the aerial's in the floor. <laughs> in a rev- narrow little ravine with trees above us, there's no way it's going to work. But at least we know, I know that safety, health, the safety is coming. So then eventually the sapier pompier from, from Corte arrive and, you know, then the FIA turn up and all the rest of it. And I thought, Christ, I better ring the team. I haven't spoken to the team. So I get the phone out and go and ring, John, we've had an accident. Sorry, I've been in the middle of all of this and you know Colin's trapped in the car he's okay but he's trapped in the car um told him roughly where we were on the road book and you know I said the, the stage is stopped and somebody's coming so then these guys started to action this and then I just left them to it and cutters and doing this and ambulance people were there and then the FIA came and stood on the bank there then next minute there's this doctor stood on the floor pan up above him now with his medical bag and stuff and I'm thinking hang on it's the weight of the car pushing against the roll cage against his chest and face <laughs> and, you're st- and you're stood on the car and then all of a sudden everything stopped they stopped working they didn't do anything 
So, and I was acutely aware of a thing called the golden hour. Have you heard of the golden hour? Mm. And I look, I got the time card out of my pocket and I thought, Jesus, you know, we're 42 minutes in to this stage. So, you know, we haven't got long left before these dangerous toxins start to kick in. And Jesus, unless he's out with this guy, he's dead. So then, eventually then, Jimmy turned up with our fitness trainer, Bernie Shrewsbury. And Bernie's built like a brick shit house. And I said to Jack from the FIA, I said, listen, soon enough, it's 60 minutes and he's going to be in serious trouble here, Jack. Let's sort this out. He said, no, he said, I'm the FIA, I have to be impartial. Fuck, impartial? I said, fuck's sake. So I said, Bern, we're going to have to take control here. So I looked at what they'd done. They tried to chop the seat. They tried to chop this and then there was a guy... You know, got the, his knife and cut, trying to cut the strap of his helmet against his throat. Right, give me that. Okay, get out of the way. He got the knife, put the knife inside and cut away from him. So then I thought, right, they haven't, they haven't chopped the roll cage here. That must be a tension point there. And they chopped the steering wheel to f try and fold the steering wheel as best they could out of the way. But that was not really an issue. I said, Burn, what we're going to have to do, I said, we're going to have to take the weight here. And I said, if we chop this roll bar here, I think we'll get enough movement to be able to slide him out of his helmet and out of the car. So he said, yeah, I think you're right. So I said, I got the, um, the one guy with the hydraulic cutters. I said, in two minutes, you see, comes that. So I said, Bernie, you put your foot on. The, he grabbed basically the, the sill as best he could, put his foot on the, on the roll bar. I went inside the car, stood on the roof, put my back up against the tunnel on the inside. So I said, Allez, Allez. So clunk, all of a sudden you could feel there was movement. There was movement. So then Bernie pulled like hell and I was pushing like hell inside. And then the, the two guys from the thing said, Okay, alley, alley, alley. So then they slid him out from the car and managed to leave, leave the helmet, leaving me out of the so helmet. So tight the helmet was left in. I think it was left in as far as I can remember, yeah. Because when he came out, and I've never seen anybody look such a disgusting colour in all my life. You could tell that the trauma of this, you know... Was, and he'd been upside down, hadn't he? He'd been upside down. He'd just been hanging so there. So he must have been purple. Yeah, but no, grey. Grey. It was a horrible colour, grew grey but it was a dreadful colour anyway they put him in a stretcher get him in an ambulance they tranquilise him put him in a calm environment and that was all about probably about just between about close to 55 minutes so he, he was in real trouble wasn't he he was in real trouble but these fire people just stopped so the next day I was in a hotel and I looked at the local paper the heroes from Corte talking about these bloody, these sapier pompier fire brigade, about how they were the heroes and all taking pictures. And I thought, Jesus, if people only knew, you know, and he, he would have been, he was close to hurting himself. So he, he was injured, wasn't he? He smashed his cheekbone a bit. And what effectively it was, the roof had punctured his cheekbone. Yeah. That's all it was. But someone like Colin, did it affect him at all? Did it affect his approach to the sport? Well, no, not really. Was he a really. father by then? I presume he... I mean... Well, you know, he, he, he... I basically... Jimmy went with him to the hospital. He went up to um, Bastia Hospital, I think. And I spoke to Jimmy and 
Dr. Colin, and you know, he was like, what the hell happened? What the hell happened? And, you know, eventually I spoke to him and how you feeling? Oh, he said, I'm feeling a bit better now. He said, I felt really groggy. And he said, I've just broken my cheekbone. That's all. He said, everything else physically, other than kept some bruises, you know, I'm fine. So then the next event I think we went to was it would have been San Remo rally, another tarmac rally. So we didn't talk about it. We just went into the recce. We did the recce. And that was fine. And then we got to the first stage and then thinking, right, I wonder what's going to happen here. And we just five, four, three, two, one, go. And then you could see he was a little bit tentative, but after one kilometer, gone, gone. <laughs> that was back to normal. Everything was fine. Most people would never got in a car no. again. And after one kilometer, it was fine, forgotten about, and off we went. And I think we finished. We didn't have a great result, understandably, but we were we picked up some. Points. Did you ever talk about that accident again? Not. To, you know, we did in 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 chatting with guys in the recce or in meals and but stuff. Otherwise, but he said, "I don't know what happened," and only when we went back to Corsica the next year, when we were in the same area, not on the same stage, he did say, "Bring those notes from last year for that stage." He had to go back and clear in his mind exactly what had happened, and basically, the long six left and six left fifty to the two left. The long six left and the and six left bit was a part of the long six. Yeah. So while he was going long six, he was waiting for this little straight and then another six. And it wasn't there. And it wasn't there. So we came bowling full speed and we had 50 metres to slow for a second gear corner left, which was no chance. But that and six was the breaking point to boom, 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 and the two. And once he knew that, he said, thank God. He said, it's a problem with the notes. He said, I can see it now. They're bloody machines, aren't they? Yeah. Well, I, want to I want to fast forward. This is genius, this is. I want to fast forward to 2001. Well, we had another accident that year, the following year as well. Yeah. We went off and broke his finger. Where was that? Corsica. Oh, so in 2001, he went off in Corsica yeah. as well? Yeah, we went off again. It's the worst rally of them all to go off on. It's just <laughs> it basically drops and walls, isn't it? <laughs> and this was just a, a big left cut into a right. And he just cut and just slid wide, went off on the outside and smashed into this tree uh, on his side. I said, you all right? Yeah, 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 I'm okay, I'm okay. I said, right, okay, I pressed the button this time. I got out of the car, weighed people down. Anyway, I thought, where the hell is he? So I go back. Here he is, that funny colour grey again. I said, you all right? No, not really. <laughs> I said, oh, shit. I said, can you move? He said, I can't get out of the seat. So what had happened, he smashed onto the A-pillar again, which had smashed everything across. All the door came in, and on the steering wheel broke his finger, where the, where the door had smashed into the steering wheel. But it had also pushed all the sill and roll bar in, and the bucket seat had now folded over him. So now he can't get out of the bucket seat. So now he's almost got to dislocate his hip to get out from the seat. So I just went back to the car, press red, wave him down and wait for the ambulance to come and then they got him out and that was the following year so jesus I, I, and that's how that's virtually off the back of winning 97 and 98 in subaru yeah in corsica as well so at that on that rally so different breed the level of risk that you were exposed to physically wouldn't be tolerated now no i don't think although you know tanax accident you must have watched that in monte carlo this year and thought 
if you, there's there's two sides to it. On the one hand, it's a celebration of the integrity of the safety of the car that it allows you to do that. On the other hand, should you be having accidents of that magnitude and walking away from them? I mean, it's difficult to know where you land, isn't it? Rallying is not racing. We, I think, if you were going to rattle down a crash barrier and stuff, that's one thing. But in rallying, we've always got obstacles. Immovable objects. Yeah, houses, walls. And the worst ones, of course, is trees. Yeah. You know, because that was always my biggest fear. And we had an accident in 99, which was the only time that I thought I was dead and Colin thought it was my time. But a sideways impact into a Where tree. Where was that? Australia. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just went off at big six gear right over a jump and it took off and it landed on the front left on broadside. And the steering had... They were still developing the steering and it was wrong ratio anyway. The forces ripped the steering wheel out of his hands and we ended up changing direction. So instead of going flat right, we were now going flat left broadside, my side. And all I can see is this massive tree. And the side, sideways into a tree is, is yeah, the one, isn't it's it? It's sayonara. Mm. And I'm thinking, Christ, I'm dead. And, you know, they say that before you, you know, in, in serious situations, your life flashes in front of you. Damn, didn't it ever to me? Friends, my wife... A family, friends. So I just shut my eyes. And in the last few feet, we had this massive impact and the car spinning around, you know, and I had this tremendous pain in my foot. Anyway, we stopped and I opened my eyes. Oh, Christ, I'm alive. So I said, Cole, you all right? Yes. He said, you okay? I said, yeah, fine. Yes, my foot hurts. So I get out the car and flipping hobble off. And it's like an aeroplane accident now. You know, there's struts, wheels, flipping brakes, bonnets, wings, bumpers, everything spread everywhere. And um, it literally just smashed right across the engine, the just in front of the A-pillar, across the wheel, cracked the gearbox, split the block, the dash came off. Two and a half feet further back and you were gone. I was you? gone, absolutely gone. And all it was, my, my left foot just in the impact went smash against the roll cage, broke my toe. So I just hobbled off with a broken toe. And that was and that was the only time Colin ever hurt me in a rally car. Really, that a broken toe. Yeah. When we look at the wreckage on those yeah. films. Yeah, broken toe. He always hurt himself. I think that was the thing with Colin. There's such commitment that when you're going off, he doesn't have the choice. Should I go off the co-driver side or my side? It's gonna go. It's just you're gonna go off, and it always seemed to. He's always seemed to hurt himself. We laugh about contemplating your own mortality, and you talk about. You know your life flashing in front of you as you're going in. That, that, that's not easy. Uh, I don't know many other people that that take their their day job to that level. I mean, no. you know, you're you're consider. You know, I mean, do you have kids? No. Did that have any impact on that? I mean, yeah. not really. No, we just weren't gifted in that department, and it's not a bad thing. I'm leading a very selfish life with a wife and I now. Yeah. But, you know. Do you think you would have had a different attitude towards all of this if you did have children? No. No. It's interesting, isn't it? I'd still do it. Yeah. I'd still do it, you know, and I, and I, and I think, you know, you, you never th- thought about those things. As I said to you before, if you thought about it... You wouldn't get in the car, would you? You wouldn't do it. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to do your... You, you're thrust into an extremely high-pressured, rather dangerous position that you have to block out, concentrate on those pace notes... And just keep it coming in a, 
you know, in a beautifully delivered, calm, relaxing manner that, you know, you've got to come over like, yeah, you're driving well and everything's under control and isn't it nice and what a lovely stage and isn't the car set up nice? There's, and there's la, other la, la, stuff la, la. That's, that's really interesting about this as well, Nikki, that you're probably not aware of, but your, vo- your voice got a lovely tone and also mm. your voice when delivered through a, through a microphone <clears throat> on a, what was then a Peltor system mm. is very distinctive and I think... I think the Celtic side really helps. I think because I think, and I'm sitting with Nilo, who's recording this. By the way, is another bloody Celt from just down the road from Ebervale. But um, but they're you know you're you're deliberate. You you hit your consonants hard, the T's and the C's and and, and the vowels are rounded. And I I don't it's it's no coincidence that it it would have sounded good through the headsets, mm. which definitely helped. I'm sure it matters. Yeah. And the other thing I've noticed, we've got some notes of yours here. Beautiful handwriting. You know that this is this is sort of calligraphic levels of, it's everything's rounded. It's quite it's quite um, flamboyant writing. Yeah, it's interesting. This is the stuff that people will never would know about you. But but it is you know these these paste notes are, I'd frame these and put them on my bloody wall. It's beautiful well, writing. Probably a lot of these are done straight off the recce, which people can say, well, how the hell do you manage to write these? Have you written these notes? No, that's exactly why I did it. It's just being able to cope with the surroundings and just make it happen but you know at the end of the day you know i, I you know you, you put into it what do you get out of it the um let's fast forward 2001 then i want to talk to you about that incredible rally gb which is of the modern era probably the biggest build-up to a rally i would have thought was was burns versus mccray 2001 rally gb can i do one rally earlier go on, please go on uh, no a couple of rallies earlier go on um, Acropolis Rally, yeah. I think in the same year. Again, a great rally for, for Colin. You know, we'd already run it quite a few times. And we did. We were leading after the first day. And we were leading after the second day. And we were in a battle with our teammate. But during the recce, we had this new loop in this one area. And we came onto this new stage. Of, I think it was called Zeller or something. It was about 36 kilometres long. So we're making the notes for the first time and it was this wide open mountain that we were climbing up and you could see everything. It was a lovely, great spot for spectating. And eventually we got into the top of the mountain, narrow, twisty, bumpy water splashes. And and then just before the end, a few Ks, these downhill hairpins and long four left opens, wall outside and six left over crest and six jump, 150. And... Um, we came there, I said, straight past the junction on the right. So we came to this, top of this crest, and Colin stops on the recce now. So I said, oh, what's up? And I'm looking, and we've got now, effectively, this big dip in the road going along and back up to the same level that we're on. So, And in the bottom of this dip off on the right is this junction to the right. So he said, um, I said, what are you thinking? <laughs> no, where this is going. <laughs> he, he said... I think we can jump this. <laughs> and I said, oh, right. So to give you some idea, you could have probably put two Ford bu- uh, focuses in the bottom, bumper to bumper, and coming across, you wouldn't see them. But then you've got the slope of the, of the thing. So probably three focus long at least. But, you know, we're talking a serious slope. So if you, if you get it wrong, it's sayonara. Yeah. But we're on a, but we can't try it because we've got these special tracker boxes which restricts our speed. You see, so we can't speed. So we said, right, we'll make the notes as if we're going through the bottom of it. So it's caution, medium crest, 
uh, and dip and six crest 70 six right long six left opens over finish to stop so we did the recce and we went down da, 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 caution medium crest and dip and uh, round right okay so that was it so we finished the recce so what we're going now off to shakedown so we're, we're doing shakedown but what, what i didn't realize is that until i got after shakedown we get back to service malcolm pulls me over he said tell me about this this jump or this dip in this one stage i said oh how do you know about that he said well, he said at the moment he said i'm facing about a six thousand pound bill on my on one of the recce cars <laughs> i said what he said he said he's just sent his father in the recce car to try it so oh, jesus so i could see colin in talking to his father you see so i go over there now and I said, what's going on here then? And he said, um, he said, oh, dad's just been to try the, de the jump. <laughs> now, Jim's 60 years of age now, and he's in a Group N car, heavy old lump of a thing. So what they'd done, Jimmy'd got there, they'd got to this point, wrecked it, sussed it. The co-driver was on the crest just to wave Jim down should anything be coming. So Jim goes back up the road, and now he's coming in this Escort Cosworth Group N car. Top of the slope, slammed the front <laughs> into the top. Wheels, struts, front bumper, the cross member, radiator. The whole front of the car's destroyed. So they've had to call the recce guys to come with the trailer to pick them up, you see. So I'm listening to the conversation now, and, and they're talking. And he said, well, I tried it in this, and he said, you know, okay, it was quite severe. And he said, well, what do you think? I mean, obviously, we're going to be in the rally car. What do you think? So Malcolm's listening in now. And Jimmy said, well, to be fair, in the rally car, you're going to be coming a lot faster yeah. you'll you know, than it. me. And he said, I think you'll do it. So Mal I said to Malcolm, what do you think? And he said, he said, well, how bad is it? And I said, well, if it, you've seen what mess you've had. <laughs> you know, I said, if it doesn't happen, then it's sayonara. And I, I said, what do you think, Mark? Well, I'll leave him to it, he said. Because Malcolm always let Colin get on with things. So, right, we leading the first day, leading the second day, big battle with Carlos. We come to this stage, which is three stages on the last day, used twice. So we're still in the lead. Start of this stage, right, tell me, what are we going to do with this jump? And he said, I don't know, he said, I'm going to see how I feel when I get there. <laughs> Christ, so that really does help me. So now I've zeroed. So, <laughs> so I've zeroed the trip meter, and I know it's on the last page, page thirty-six of thirty-six of the notes, and I know it's at thirty-five point five kilometers. So now we're reading the notes. It's like a Hollywood score, this, isn't it? It is. That's <laughs> only good for petrol heads. Nobody else would truly and oh, feel they'll the still, pleasure. They'll it. still be listening. Don't worry. Carry on. Um, so we're going through the stage now and we know we've got a battle with Carlos and, you know, he's not going to sort of let us get away with it. <clears throat> so I thought inevitably we're going to have to, he's probably going to take this jump, I'm thinking, you know, because we want to make up as much time as we can. So we've got split board in the stage just to tell us where we were on the splits. So anyway, <clears throat> split board came out, Carlos out. 
and the next guy was plus 30 some odd seconds so it's a cruise now yeah <clears throat> so i thought oh thank god for that open hairpins down the hill long four left opens wall outside six left over crest and six jump 150 how do you, you remember these notes it's yeah. amazing caution medium crest and dip and six crest 70 so i'm now waiting for a Big braking section, zoom, 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 down the gearbox. <laughs> okay, it's going to be what it's going to be. Anyway, he launches this thing. So we landed on the other side. The front cleared it, no problem, but the back wheel must have just top, touched the top of the, the hill. Launched the back of the car in the air. And now it's then gone sideways, going down this ditch on the side of the road. Load of spectators on the left, running like hell. <laughs> You know, typical McRae, flat, round the six right, long six left opens, over finish to stop. <laughs> so we get there. Fill out the time card. Jesus, that was a bit dodgy, Carl. He said, um, he said, I think I got the line wrong, he said. He said, if we keep it more to the right the next time, he said, I think it'll jump a lot better. So, of course, I had to relive it all again. <laughs> and, that's, and that, for you, is Colin McRae, you see? As a, it's a, a brilliant anecdote because you've got the board, that, the board that says you no longer need to do this. Yeah. But you do it anyway. Yes. So why do you think he did do it? Because he wanted to? Probably. And, you know, the devil in him perhaps a little bit. But also now having met his father, who I didn't know before, who's obviously a really lovely man, mm. you get the feeling that he just wanted to go back to his dad and go, yeah, you're right, we can do it. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Perhaps so. But that was him. Yeah. It was do or die. It wasn't a case of... What would, you okay, have, what would you have done? He would have probably gone down through it. Well, to give you to finish off that story, Colin's brother was doing it with Hyundai, who retired in the morning. At service, Colin said, I took that flat. Alistair said to him, Jesus, you must be mad. He said, no, it was all right. He said, I'm going to do it again this afternoon. He said, <laughs> he said and Alistair said, oh, I'll go and watch, he said. <laughs> so now he said, Alistair, Alistair's gone there to spectate now. So Alistair had everybody on the watch coming into view to going out of view. We were the only people that took it flat. How much quicker do you think we were? Three seconds. Two. <laughs> two seconds. All that risk for two seconds. And do you know what? The following year, he never did it. We went down through the dip. But the following year, two guys did it, which I was quite surprised at. One of them was Carlos, and the other one was a French driver called Bugalski, who was a tarmac expert. Yeah, he was brilliant in the situation. He, he was the only guy to win a world rally in a front-wheel drive car, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. yeah. But he was the, those are the only two that took it flat the year before, the year after us, but he never did it the year after. What a fantastic But that's, that's calling. And then we go on to Rally GB, of course. So, and when we, so we get to Rally GB, where Burns versus McRae, either of them can win the championship. Yes. Um, it's Subaru versus Ford. And you you don't have the machinery, do you? The focus is still not the quickest car, is it? No. Well, I think we we were ending up. We had yeah. Richard could win potentially could win the championship as well. You know the French guys were there. Um, why with, why Peugeot done so badly that year? <clears throat> I think they must have had some technical issues without. Doing no, no. my homework, but I'm I can't sure they had that. the fastest car, didn't they? Well, they yes, they did, they did, and and Marcus won quite a few events. Yeah, but we won a few events too. But by hook or by crook, we'd had some sensible 
steady performances as well. <clears throat> but we get there and we weren't in a battle with them at all. It was just a case of stay in front of Richard. So we did the super special down at Cardiff Bay. Yeah, watch that. <clears throat> and we were quickest on that. So we left Cardiff early the next morning up to Pontypridd to the service. Just a few miles up the road and just turn of daybreak. We were first car on the road, I think. Yeah, and it was, right, this is catch everybody asleep. This is the first proper stage of the rally and, you know, it was it was pretty quick. And he started off quite sensible, really. Doesn't look like it on the onboard. <clears throat> no, but then he got progressively quicker and quicker as confidence grew and, you know, wonderful car control and, you know, such flamboyancy, but perfection in terms of where he places the car and how he controls it and it's not overdone and staying as best he can in the clean line and taking a little cut here and a little cut there and, and afterwards we're, I'm going to we're going to watch this on on uh, on the screen and we're going to I want to sit and talk to you as we watch it but for me um sometimes I'm asked by my friends who don't like cars most of my friends don't like cars or motorsport don't understand my obsession with it and sometimes after a few glasses of whiskey they'll say show me some driving show me a piece of driving that is the thing I show them. I don't show them um, Schumacher in the wet in Barcelona. I don't show them Fangio. I, sh I show them that because I still I still can't get my head around it. Yeah. I don't know about you, but did you ever see him better than that or not? No, I, th I think you were seeing Colin at a point in the season where we'd had a busy season. There'd been a lot going on, done a lot of driving, a lot of testing, and that was him in his prime, going on a rally that he's really comfortable with. The downhill sections at the end, when you... I mean, you appear to be flat in sixth yeah. for 20 seconds at a time. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, tricky over crests with log piles in and out, and you can easily take a cut too much on a flat six-gear left over a crest, you know, and be 10 centimetres out. And, you know, you could write the car off. But, you know, he's there just pinned. But as a marker... Because the car shouldn't have won that stage, should it, really? No. And it did, didn't it? Well, we, yeah, we, we had two Peugeots behind us. Um, I think Didier was second quickest, and uh, Marcus Granholm literally was third. But Burns was about eight or nine seconds behind us. So then we went into the next stage, which was a short stage, which brought us right out on the top of the Rigos, above the Rhondda Valley. And, you know, we did that stage, and... We beat Richard, but Marcus had taken... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In a few seconds out of us. So we're now on the road section, dropping down into Triorki. And Colin's going, fuck, fuck. I said, what's wrong? He said, fucking Mark has taken time out of us. I said, listen, it doesn't matter about him. It doesn't matter when we're in a battle for Richard Burns. That's what we've got to concentrate on. It doesn't matter what he does. Let him get on and win the rally. But he said, no, we need to have a buffer just in case we have a puncture or we need to gain 30 seconds. I said, let's try... 30 seconds? That's what he's thinking. And I said, you need to... Let's get it at the end of the day. You're not going to do it in a stage. You know, let's do it bit by bit by bit. You know, but I said, it doesn't matter what happens in there. And then the times were coming through via the radio. And I said, there, you know, Richard's two and a half slower than us or something. So I said, we're already ten and a half up on him. So, you know, that's our point. So we drive down to Triorki and then we turn back into the forest and then we're climbing up the opposite side of where we've just come down, effectively. But, you know, being that time of year, weather conditions, it's wet, it's cold, and, you know, you get this low cloud coming out of off the Irish Sea and, you know, you get these clouds which come into the stage on the top, which were, by the time we got there... It was misty. Yeah. So then it was a bit boobah, boobah for about, you know, a mile and a half, two miles. So then we came out to the other side of this and then whoosh, then we were off again. And then he's going for it. And, you know, there was a couple of cuts on a crossroads left. Oh, that was a bit risky, but it was fine. And, you know, a gear higher here or a gear higher there. And then we had this really quick section of flat, flat, flat and five, six left minus over crest cut. And then, you know, these were in close proximity at exceptionally high speed and they had to come like machine gun calls. So he's got the information and picked the line. And he said that when he went into this thing, it was set a little bit too much on the inside. And he said he he felt he could have changed the line, just braked and let it slid a little wide. But he said, no, it'll be okay. It looked okay because we had this long grass in there. And what he couldn't see was the there was a hole on the inside of the corner with a bank the other side. So, of course, once we'd cut, he went into it, slammed the front end in, which then just sent us up in the air and corkscrewed us through the air. It was a massive accident. A massive shunt. Did you see the doors on the top of the stairs? Yeah. That's off that accident. Then all the other body panels, yeah, they're all off that accident. And um, So you'd actually started to realise you needed some legacy at that yeah, point. So uh, collecting bits. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm lucky to have probably the most famous accident he's ever had. But yeah, it was a massive shunt and it was sort of like sky, ground, trees, sky, ground, trees. Boom, bing, bang, bosh. Boof. I I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. I just looked at him and I didn't say anything. So I just sort of sorted myself out, picked up the pace notebooks, packed the bag. 
Did, in those situations, did you talk to each other? Did you feel you could say to him, no, what didn't. the fuck were you doing? No, did you Because you couldn't, he obviously wouldn't handle that. No. Did, he, did he turn around to you and go, I got that wrong? Was it just silence? No, nothing, nothing. Didn't say a thing. You know, it was finished. And, you know, I just, I just packed my bag and then we just waited then for, you know, the helicopter came, they sent the helicopter to come pick us up, left a mechanic with the car and that was it, the world championship gone. Very, very... I'm like, I'm not knowing the bloke, but having interviewed him and seen the way he was around people, I can see that's what, you know, once he, that was it, done, move on. Yeah. Did he even speak to you about it afterwards? Not until... I mean, he was bitterly disappointed about it. Yeah. I didn't really speak that much with him. I said, you know, I went to the service park, picked up my wife, we went back to the hotel and packed my bags and stuff and checked out. And he was there doing the same with um, with Alison. And I just said, I just, you know, I'll catch you soon and bad luck and all the rest of it. And I went back to Abergavenny and he, he made his way back. He didn't back blame you? No, no, no. There was nothing. There was there was no blame at all, really, from either side. You know, it's, you know, as much as anything else, when you're asking a driver to go as fast as you possibly can, you know, at times you can get things slightly wrong, you know, and it's an acceptable part for a driver, you know. If it's a co-driver's fault, it's a different thing. You're not allowed to make any mistakes. Yeah, I get that. That's an interesting distinction. But also, he, it was a risk he didn't need to take, wasn't it? Well, ultimately. Well, he did, he did say, I could have changed my line. But I thought, no, it'll be okay. But in the end, that was his last real, perhaps, opportunity, in hindsight, his last real opportunity to win a world championship. Yeah. We did have 2002, but that, you know, I think the whole... Um, you know, the, the disappointment of, of 2001, you know, held him back. And then in the end, we ended up splitting up at the end of 2002, yeah. obviously. Which so talk me through that, because it, was a, it, was a, it wasn't a partnership that bought championships, but it bought a lot of, a huge amount of publicity. And it also bought an awful lot of individual rally wins. Yes, I mean, we, 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 yeah, we did win a lot. And, you know, I think... When we went off in New Zealand, which is where it happened, you know, I kind of called it and then he said, what's this? And, you know, it came to the point that all I could do was say three. I could only give him a number. I couldn't tell him anything else. And we just went over this category. He smashed it against this kind of a wooden fence that led you to the edge of the cattle grid, rattled against it. But then it was too late. And then we just went over this crest. And while the road was going right... You know, we just went straight on, got stuck, and there's no way out from that. And, you know, at that point, I think that was probably for him, you know, the end of our relationship, he felt at that time. And, you know, he just collected his coat and stuff and just walked off, walked out to the stage. And we were only a few k's from the end. He just walked to the end of the stage. So I just stayed with the car and got on the radio, told the team. There's no sense of resentment from you at all. It's it's like that you knew you were in the presence of an individual who had a way of handling things and you don't resent that and that you, you had a good time doing it, a great opportunity, but the relationship had reached its end. Yeah, I, I, I think everybody is different in this situation and I feel that I'm quite chilled and laid out about these things and I will always see the good side of a bad situation and, you know, I just thought, right, you know, he needs to sort it for himself you know, uh, I was the kind of scapegoat to, to a point, 
and I didn't say anything. So, you know, and then I literally, we, we went back to Auckland. I didn't hear from him. But before on the, on the, you know, to keep my mind distracted, the America's Cup were racing in Auckland at that time. And we met the British team that were there as a PR stunt before the event. So they said, oh, if you ever want to come out and have a ride on the boat, let me know. So I said, oh, great. If I get the opportunity, give me a card. I'll give you a ring. So I thought, all right, I've got nothing to do. So I give this guy a ring. He said, oh, yeah, great. He said, I tell you what, we're going out with a spare boat tomorrow to do some back-to-back testing. Every day they take two boats, one to test something that the other boat may or may not use. So here I am, I'm 16th man on the back of this bloody fantastic carbon fibre boat, and it kind of kept me occupied. Yeah. And we're racing the other main race boat. So it was very interesting. But I didn't hear from him for probably two days, and he was still in, in New Zealand. And um, I thought, well, I'll just leave him settle, you know. And next minute I get a phone call from a journalist in Australia. And I, they said, hi, Nick. And I said, oh, hi, how are you doing? No, no, yeah, very good. He said, listen, he said, I've just been told something that, you know, that you won't be doing Rally GB, but I don't know it yet. That's what it came from the journalist in Australia. So I thought, Jesus, I felt really disappointed then, I can yeah. tell you. So uh, anyway, I thought, right, I'm going to pick up the phone and speak to him. And I said, I call. I said, listen, I think we need to get together here. I said, I've just had a phone call from somebody in Australia to tell me about a decisions that's been made. I said, I think we need to sit down and talk about it at least. So Colin wasn't very good with confrontation, really. Didn't like it. You know, I think if he was dishing it out, it'd be a different thing. But, yeah. you know, the onus here was for him to take it. And he was very standoffish. And I said, I said, is it true? He said, yes, I've decided to do that. And I think it was probably him and his dad spoken about it. And he said that we decided that we'd probably get Derek back in the car because, you know, we know we could work together. You know, and I said, well... Listen, one, I said, we've been through a hell of a lot in these few few years. I said, we've won a lot of rallies. And I said, you know, I thought you could have spoken to me before you went announcing it to the world. I said, you owe me that at least. I said, the fact that it's out is one thing. But I said, listen, we've got to think about when it is announced and how we're going to handle it. But I said, you know, I want you to know that no matter what, I'm not going to be saying anything detrimental about you. And I don't expect you to be saying anything detrimental about me. Just say that we've decided to move on and let's leave it at that. And, you know, I said, you never know what happens in the future. And I said, I don't want to fall out with you because I said, you know, we're friends. I'd like to think we're friends. I said, even if you feel we're not good working relationship. And he said, that's agreed. I said, right, come on then, let's go and have a beer. Do you think he stuck by it? He did. He did. And I think I think there was a a, cert, a fair amount of respect in me saying that. You know, I think he accepted that and he said, yeah, that's absolutely fair. You know, and I never slagged him. You know, and, and that was it. As it happened, no, I think it was Australia and Rally GB. It was two events. Yeah. Um, as it was, Speed Television in America asked me to go and cover 
their coverage of the World Championship. So for Rally Australia, I was in Charlotte doing some voiceover work for yeah. them and punditry. And then, you know, I went there to do uh, Rally GB as well. And it kind of saddened me when I... I was glad for Derek that he had the opportunity to go back there because I think, you know, Derek's a different person to me completely. You know, he's very quiet and, you know, stay away and just do what he needs to do and then go to his room and stay there. And that was him. And, you know, and I, I felt that, you know, he was the scapegoat as well at some point. But I was glad he had the opportunity to get back in the car. But I was kind of a bit saddened for him because things had moved on in those what it would have been six years you know when he got back into the car you know he seemed to be struggling a little bit yeah you know and and you know in gb something happened there and you know i, th I thought oh it's a shame perhaps perhaps you know colin could have perhaps brought somebody fresh in again yeah give him some fresh impetus but in the end derek went and did another year with citroen which was you know i was hoping i'd have the opportunity to at least sit in for citroen because at that time, they were a team that were on the charge and, yeah. you know, it was happening. But I never had the opportunity. And this young lad called Sebastian Loeb. Yeah, started to kick ass big time. He probably, I mean, Colin's career was doing that, but that was the end, wasn't it, really? It was. I mean, he just, I remember going to a test day they put on for the media out near Aberystwyth or something on a test stage mm. there in 03. And um, it was it, I, th I think Colin actually had a shunt that day, or maybe Loeb did, but um, it was obvious from the way the team were talking that they knew they had something absolutely red hot on their hands, mm -hmm. and he just blew he blew them away, didn't he? Mm -hmm. The new style of driving, this straight style, sort of water all style. It was, it was, and it, it it wasn't it wasn't as flamboyant to look at, but it was the beginning of a new era, wasn't it? But the thing is, I, th I think the one thing that crystallised Sebastian Loeb was not just that new style of driving. But it was the team developing a whole new car around that way of driving. So while it was extremely efficient, the car became equally as efficient to allow him to do that. So it was doubling up on the benefits. And also the negative the side for Colin, because, you, yeah. you know, he's the guy who wants the rear bias car to slide it and the car doesn't want to do it. Well, I did have an opportunity because... Eventually, the Speed TV thing sort of kicked off and I started doing my own bits at the rallies for Speed. So I was doing all the World Championship again. And, you know, some two, three years later, you know, the boss man from Skoda came up to see me. And he said, you know, Nick, what would be the opportunity to try and get Colin to come and do a rally for us in a car? And I said, well, that's a possibility. I said... Um, do you want me to broach the subject and, you know, are you happy for me to go drive? And he said, yeah, of course. So I picked up the phone and spoke to him. I said, listen, you know, there's a potential interest to do a rally here. And I said, you know, because Colin had been out at that point for, what, a year and a half or something, was doing nothing because his career was finished at that point, which I was quite surprised at, really, in many yeah. ways. I thought he would have had a lot more opportunities, but Citroen was the end of it. Yeah. And... um he said, yeah, okay. I said, and I said, you know, me co-driving, of course. And, yeah, no problem. Yeah, that'd be great. I said, do you want me to have a little bit more of a conversation and then come back to you and then hand it over to you? He said, yeah, that'd be great. So spoke to them and they said, right, what's your thought process, right? We were thinking that perhaps doing Australia 
and then straight off Australia, go and do Wales Rally GB. So he said, yeah, that's fine. That's, that's, that, that should be a possibility. And I said, obviously, you've got to have to talk to Colin about monies and stuff. You know, and I said, you know, obviously there's our fees as well. And da, da, da. Yeah, that won't be a problem. So I said, right, well, I'll get called to give you a ring. So I got his numbers and that was it. Deal done. So we get to Australia. What year is this? 2005. Oh, yeah. So now all of a sudden there was this Skoda Fabia that had been in the World Championship for a couple of years but had never ever done anything. It's always been there or thereabouts but it was never at the races. You know, Armin was driving it. And the Octavia was more Armin, wasn't it? The yeah. long wheelbase thing. He was yeah. sideways everywhere in that. But this little Fabia was a fabulous little package. Yeah. You know, wheel on each corner, reasonably long wheelbase, not like this you know, Yaris, which is quite short and, you know, this thing was, yeah, everything about it was right. So we went to um, Australia and we did a bit of testing and it felt okay and we did a bit of this and a bit of that and, yep, fine, good, it was it was fine. And we, we set off on this rally and right from the word go, we were at the races. But Australia was a bit different because you've got this, when we were over in Western Australia in Perth, you had this funny kind of round ball bearing type gravel and it was a, obviously exceptionally dry so it was a hard base but you've got these ball bearings sat on the surface so you had to work with the tyres to hold the stones to get grip of stone on stone yeah not to clear the stones because you, so you wanted the thread box to fill up yes to use the stone to get your grip so but it was narrow they were tracks made in woods so you may come out of a corner and you'd have this bloody great big tree stump right on the edge where you drift the car to so in a lot of people's minds this is like oh watch this one Colin but, but Colin was a different thing he would commit not to the point of needing to hit it but he would be his danger level would be one step higher than most people and we were right at the races but there was a lot of devastation on that event I remember that Loeb crashed out early Somebody else. Was there a massive out. Mitsubishi crash on that one as well? Yeah, Delacour. Engine out the front. Job. The engine shot yeah. out the front, just up the road where I had that deadly accident with us in the um, yeah. in the Focus. It was it was a render shunt. But anyway, we get we last day or the second the penultimate day we get back to Perth. The team is absolutely buzzing. Armin Schwarz is nowhere to be seen. We're second overall. Now, all of a sudden, Skoda have never, ever been in this position before. Yeah. You know, this is like, there's no chance of us winning, really. Dele, um, Duval was in front of us in the Citroen. So the last day was made up of two stages twice. Um, sort of run twice, so back to back. So at that service, everybody was carrying on. We had our lunch and our dinner and stuff and... You know, we put the car in park Fermi, went to bed and, you know, obviously we left engineers and everybody deal the thing. So we start the, the last day. So off we set and we disappear into the first of these two stages. Now, at that time, we were on Michelin tyres. And it was quite... When the road becomes a lot cleaner, the Michelin tyre became far more competitive than the Pirelli. But the Pirelli was a lot better when it was slightly dirtier and a bit more road cleaning and the design of the tread or whatever it may be. So we were close. We were just in front of Harry Rovenpera and Mitsubishi. And 
we did the first loop of stages and we lost a few seconds and we were actually in third place. But we knew that our tyre on the second run through these stages we'll be we'd be much much yeah. quicker so now we're it's 20 minute service back in perth and we're having you know just a mid-morning snack and a, and a drink and stuff and i'm sat next to colin and uh, my wife and and alison colin's wife and next minute there was a nudge and it was the engineer i said he said um, nick he said um could you go to the out control for us so Colin said, why, what's the problem? He said, oh, we've got a bit of a technical issue going on here. And maybe we're going to be a bit last minute. So, right, okay. So off I went. I said, see you later. Went to the time control. So um, what had happened, we had a junior engineer who the night before had been looking at the data from the car. And there's a measurement for where the clutch is in terms of the wear ratio of the clutch. And it was actually very good. But Armin's was being changed the night before in the 45-minute service. But now, all of a sudden, you know, we'd done that first two stages. And, Christ, this reading now has gone back to reality. Shit, this thing's on the limit. He may get through, but he also may retire, you know, with probably no clutch. Now, of course, any engineer of experience would think right 45 minute service that's reading well Armin's changing is right we're going to be changing the clutch boys so just be prepared but no he let it be so when these mechanics and Armin was the number one driver so he had the best of the bunch yeah. although we were in amongst it and you know we were their leading driver we had our same team of guys which we were happy with and there was a lot of good guys with us but I think it was just the panic of it that's where experience really tells that you can be a good mechanic, but if you can't handle the pressure, all that, you know, all the, your abilities fall by the wayside. And these guys panicked. So when they had the clutch, it's built as a pack and they went to put the pack on the car and then they dropped the pack and then they had to rebuild it as best they could and what they could see. So then they built it back into the car, put in a gearbox in, and then they couldn't get the gearbox back in. So now, all of a sudden, they've got to take the gearbox back out again, take that clutch pack out, go back to the to the container, get another clutch, and you know. So now, by this time, remember the cameras at this point. Yeah. So now, at this point, now it's point critical. So the camera was with me, filming me, and I said, "Well, we've got uh, one minute to go. And we're OTL, and the car never turned up." So of course, the camera guys came with me, and we walked down the back went in through the back of the service park and used these guys. And when I get there, they're still working on the car. The whole service park, there was no spectators at all there, but right on the outside in the roadway where the cars come in and out, you had Subaru, you had Ford, you had um, Citroen. Citroen were there. All the teams were just lined up, you know, watching what was going on. So these guys, eventually, gearbox went in, bolted together, put the wheels on, dropped the car down. The mechanic started the car, dropped it, reversed it, pushed it back into first, brought it back into the service bar, into the point. And all these guys were clapping like hell. You know, and I burst into tears. Yeah. And I think a lot of these guys did too, and I'm, I'm there now reliving this. Yeah. But, you know, these poor mechanics were crying themselves, but for the wrong reason. And they couldn't stick it there. They all went into the back 
the service park. They were in these containers. There was stuff being thrown around everywhere because poor chaps were thrust into a position that probably they shouldn't have been in in the first place. It had gone wrong, and this was the best result that Skoda would have ever had, gone by the wayside. But it was an amazing story. It was. And, I, and actually, the, the fact that you didn't finish second or third doesn't diminish the quality of the story. No. Not the way you tell it, anyway. No, no. But, um, but you did do GB, didn't you? Well, we did. We went straight from there. We came to GB, and we said to the press guy from Czechoslovakia, we said, listen, you know, we just need let you know how these press conferences have worked in the past. What we suggest to diffuse what happens at the rally, because it'll be absolutely mental otherwise, is that we have a dedicated press day on the Monday or whatever it is, the week leading up to the rally, and we do it in London. We normally book a hotel, book these people in, fine, sorted it. We went, we did this press day, and they had column inches like they'd never, ever experienced before. And we got to the rally, and it was still manic in the rally, because now we were back. You know, the people outside there, the flags and the cheer and everything else. And this press guy, the main press guy from Czechoslovakia, was shaking his head. And he said, Nick, he said, Skoda have been doing this rally for 26 years. He said, we've been involved in the World Championship for I don't know how long. He said, what's happened in this rally has totally, totally blown away the last 26 years of press and PR that we've ever done. He said, I can't tell you how positive this has been. You know, and as it was, it was a difficult rally because getting back into GB again, and of course it was the death of Beef Michael Park. Park. Yeah. yeah, and you know, it, it was a bit of a sad rally from that point of view. But, you know, it didn't matter to people. It didn't matter, Colin was back. Did you finish? We did. Yeah. I can't remember where we finished. Top, in the top, top few anyway, top six or something. Weird, yeah, weird thing. That's the only... I, I did that rally. I did it in a Group N Fiesta. The first time a Group N Fiesta ever rolled. I, what we were doing there, I do not know. But me and... So Tut, Tuttle, yeah. Ford said, do you want to do it and make a great story? And I went, I've got no experience. So we did a ARDS, whatever, bars course. Yeah. And and we did the Woodpecker, I think. And then we turned up and did it in this... in this With Malcolm running the car. Right and I've go. got the book. I've got all the, all the M Sport books. And I've got a results sheet that says that and my name's on the same page as your name and I treasure it it's in my little I don't have things on my wall but it's in my little desk drawer and it says my name and Richard's name and I always remember being told that Michael Park had had, had passed away and we did we were so far that's Mark and Park wasn't it and I was, yes we were so far down the running order you've never even got down that no, path we just got told to go and then we all wobbled over to do that sort of slightly Mickey Mouse thing in the stadium that's at right. the end yeah and we'd been up against, I mean, we won our class, class of, I think there were four at the start. And by the end, there were two of us. And there was a lovely Japanese pairing called Yoshi. They were both called Yoshi, Yoshi and Yoshi, in a, in a Civic. And this was the greatest thing they'd ever done. They didn't really speak any English. And we, we all parked the cars up, didn't we, in the stadium. And it was just dead. No one wanted to do anything. It was an awful atmosphere. It Everyone was. wanted to get the fuck out of there. Yes. For, right, for, all, for all the right reasons. Yes, yeah. But Yoshi and Yoshi had been waiting 20 years to do this. And bless them, they they were cheering, jumping about on their car doing this, and there was in a totally empty stadium with their mate taking photos. It's one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. These two Japanese guys going mental, yeah. pretending that the stadium was full, but of course it wasn't. It was terrible, really was, weird, a very strange event. Yeah, it was a sad ending, especially being in Britain and a local driver as well, you know, and. 
that, you know, was what we thought was the last, but there was conversations taking off and, you know, the Skoda were going to cut back and they were going to pull out the world championship. But then I think David Richards was involved in a conversation to say, listen, do you realise what you've got here? Do you realise what you could do? And, you know, they went talk about doing a serious development and engineering project of taking it away from Czechoslovakia and stuff. You know, and, you know, we thought that, well, maybe there's a possibility that this whole thing could be revitalised and we'll end up having, you know, another career of two or three years just as a swan song and then that would be it. But they'd, I think, I think the, the, the directors had already decided that it's the end. And they'd done a deal with Armin to take the team, the cars and everything. And he did his own Red Bull rally yeah. team, which only lasted 12 months. And that was the end of it. So this is already the longest postcard we've done by, by a factor of three, I think. It's been absolutely fantastic. I <laughs> want to just I want to round a few things off. First of all, the Colin McRae name was, was obviously so ridiculously popular in the States that people didn't realise he was a real person. No, and right. then with the X Games situation you know he arrived upside down into a stadium um i mean the whole he was preposterous in some ways wasn't he because he, he, he was a very quiet person to speak to but the, the things he did in the car were outrageous um yeah it was it was it was great to be asked to do that and i think it all came from subaru america they they drove it basically and um they pulled it together and no fear clothing came and sponsored us you know, what a perfect sponsor for Colin McRae. You know, it was absolutely brilliant. And, you know, a lot of people only saw what happened in that football stadium. You know, they took a row of seats out of one corner and the opposite side corner, they took another row of seats out and built these great ramps to get in and out. But we had a whole rally, a day of rallying north of Los Angeles. So when we got there, you know, we were given these organisers' pace notes. And it was a numbered system, completely opposite to Colin. So I said to the guys, listen, you know, can we take these notes and can I reverse the numbers? So at least the numbers relate to what Colin's doing. And I said, you know, I'm not looking to modify them. All I'm going to be doing is just reversing everything that's on the page. And I said, I can come back here before we start in the morning and you can choose whatever page you want and you can double check that it's exactly as it is. I said it just would make it far safer for Colin to be able to drive that way. So they allowed it and off we went and we did the first stage and the notes were a bit strange. They weren't like they were supposed to be. So Colin, I said, what do you, how do you think we should play this? He said, oh, let's just drive it and see how we get on. So we did the first stage and Travis was um, was pretty quick to be fair and we finished the stage he said how do we do and I, I can't remember exactly but I said he's just taken 11 seconds off us he said all oh, right that's that then he said that's that so we went to the next stage and he said I, I said I take it we're going to try a bit harder he said yeah I'm going to push a bit harder here and see how the notes go so we did that stage you know and all of a sudden bang there was another five or six seconds because the notes were not the best so he said, shit, right, so we had a short stage now, which I think we were using twice, but it was short, but incredibly fast, but it was narrow with short, fast corners that you couldn't see around, but they were all six and five on these pace notes, 
So we get in there, then all of a sudden, first time through, boff, took about 10 seconds out of Travis Pastrana. Second time through, boof, took another few. And we got to the stadium, and I, I think we were about one second behind him by the time we got, we finished the rally. So then we moved camp then, and we're back down into Los Angeles in the ready to do this super special. So we had a look and did a recce and all the rest of it, and we had our split time. So we started on the top of the ramp in the one corner. Five, four, three, two, one, go. Down over the ramp, down straight into this literally a jump with a small ravine with a landing area so you're committed to jump it so we took the jump landed the other side hairpin right immediately through a couple of mogul hills for the motorbikes boom up this ramp on the other side and now we're in the car park out the on the outside doing all this stuff and i always remember the commentary from the bloody from this american saying god he's good look at this guy <laughs> He's done a couple of pavement races. Jesus. But <laughs> we, he's driving beautifully, just clipping apexes on the hairpin. There was just one open hairpin, beautiful. Through this car park, just, you know, heavily committed. And we took back one second, two seconds, and we got back into the stadium. And we think we were about two and a half, three seconds up. So now we go jump down this ramp, then to this ramp on the bottom. So what he thought, right, the hairpin after this jump is quite important. So on takeoff, he just gave it a little bit of an attitude. So when the car took off, it was kind of going sideways already, but it landed on the front left wheel. It bounced once, bounced up and bounced again. Then it had popped the tire off the rim. So now the rim's dug in now and the car is going over. So I'm feeling the G-force now and the car's going over. I thought, oh, this will be all right. We're going to land on our wheels. No sooner I thought that, throttle, bop, 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 chunk, first gear. <laughs> you were upside down. Upside down, going through the air, this was. So Cole knew exactly what was going on. So he was ready for it. There was no waiting for it to land. Soon as the car on his wheels drops the clutch and off we go now, dragging this car with a punctured front left. So it wasn't bad on a couple of corners, but there was one right-hander where, you know, we had a scrabble round. And anyway, we lost out to Travis Pastrana by about a second and a half, having rolled. <laughs> now, <laughs> they couldn't believe. And you were right. They thought Colin McRae was just some fictitious character. He was, uh, what's her name? Um, Lara Croft, wasn't yes, he? He yeah. was, yeah. He was of, 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 of round driving. Game, yeah. yeah. And... You know, all of a sudden, this accident made national six o'clock news on two channels, I think, in America, which is like for a sponsor and like no fear. They couldn't believe how brilliant it was. And then all of a sudden, Colin McRae was just like a whole new new person. He's real. And wow, what a driver he was. But that, that was him, you know, and I, I think that, you know, the world of rallying, you know, is, is probably quite... Um, is worse off because we haven't got Colin McRae for sure and that I think while he is not with us anymore I think the the legacy of Colin McRae without doubt will live forever yeah I agree and I think even doubt flat out it's a hashtag that was used so much when we showed that film um, a couple of weeks ago I've never had a response to a film that we've 
mm. produced either Neil and I on the internet or on Top Gear now for four or five years, the response to it was extraordinary. Mm. The extent to which this quietly spoken Scottish bloke has has wormed his way into their motoring lives. He's just is mm. the ultimate driving hero because I think everyone wanted to be could drive to drive the way he drove because it was so exciting. Um, and I, I don't know. I think you reach an age where you start to view life differently, and maybe, just maybe, the fatalist in me thinks that some people were supposed to shine brightly for a shorter time rather than mm. to shine less brightly for a longer time. Maybe that's what Collins' well, place on this planet was. I don't know. But the, the one, one of his other sayings were, "I'm here for a good time, not for a long time." You know, and it it always surprised me that when we flew with him in his helicopter, he says, you don't mess with these things. It's bigger and better than I am. You know, and lo and behold, it was that one thing that actually killed him in the end. Yeah. You know, and he had a lot of respect for a helicopter. So it only goes to show, doesn't it? But, you know, from from my point of view, if we're going to end this on, a, on, on something, then, you know, I think to say that, you know, I've had a great career with a lot of wonderful drivers, you know, but at the end of the day, probably the Colin years were probably the best of my career, really. And I think it's um, something proud to, to look back on, really. I think um, what an amazing experience. You sat next to the man, mm. didn't you? You yeah. sat next to the man. And now you're sitting here in an amazing building with a wonderful business, <laughs> selling God knows how many Stilo helmets. <laughs> Anyone that's involved in motorsport knows you, Nicky. You're always around. But, but, but. What I will say, and I'll have the final word here, you don't often you don't often have this happen to you. You have a unique ability to express yourself uh, and the things that you've done, and thank you so much for doing that. And um, and the things that you said on that film were were were, were thought provoking. And uh, this has been, without a doubt, the best podcast I've ever done. So thank you very much. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank, thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. listening.